So um, just want to welcome everyone here. Thank you for coming out to Spirit Rock. How many of you are new? Is this your first time to Spirit Rock? Yeah, quite a number. So welcome to this uh, very beautiful meditation center. And um, you may see across the ways there, there's actually going to be a very a new meeting hall. Uh, in just another month or two or so, <laughs> we'll be... This building will be actually coming down, and, uh, and we'll be having our day-longs uh, across the way in a really exquisite hall. So maybe as you're doing walking meditation, you can at least take a look there. And um, yeah, so I just want to just uh, welcome you, and maybe we'll just begin with just uh, a few minutes to just arrive and to check in. We call this a mindful check-in. So just we'll sit for a few minutes taking a moment to welcome ourselves that we're here and actually just curious, can you all hear me? Okay, back there, okay, good. So we'll just take a moment to welcome ourselves that we're here. Derek Walcott, a poet, says in his poem, Love After Love, to love again this stranger who is ourself, whom all your life you've ignored for another. So I just feel like this coming to spend a day of meditation, of practice, is such an act of, of love, of wanting to connect more deeply inside us. I also know uh, that what brings us here can be many things from continuing education units, interest in mindfulness in medicine, some of us perhaps living with the challenges of stress or living with pain or living with illness, loss. So we come here for many reasons. So just taking some time in these next few minutes to settle, to sense into your body and mind, acknowledging what's within you physically in the body, perhaps what may give a rise, what may become evoked mentally or emotionally, and to just acknowledge what's here, to allow, to let be, being present. So just for a few more minutes, just sitting with ourselves and just acknowledging how we're feeling, all that we're bringing in from our life, 
Acknowledging the sensations, the feelings in the body, acknowledging any thoughts and emotions and letting be. From that beautiful song of the Beatles, whispering words of wisdom, letting be. Nowhere else you have to go, nothing that you need to do, no one you have to be. And so I'd like to just end with a beautiful poem from Mary Oliver called The Journey. She says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you that kept shouting out, mend my life, mend my life, mend my life, each voice cried, but this time you didn't stop and you knew what you had to do. And though the wind pried with its stiff fingers and the melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough. It was a wild night. And the road was full of fallen branches and stones. And little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds. <coughs> and there was a new voice that you slowly recognized 
as your own. And it kept you company. It kept you company to save the only life you could ever save. It was this new voice that you slowly recognized as your own. Save the only life you could ever save, which is, of course, yourself. It was a new voice that you slowly recognized as your own. So that's a way of welcoming yourself here and actually showing up, which is no small thing. <coughs> Can you hear my voice okay with this mic like this? Yeah. Okay. A huge part of um, mindfulness is you might infer from the tiny little practice you just did is showing up to be with yourself and uh, coming home in, in a very real way to your own thoughts, and emotions, and your body. Uh, as in that, that lovely poem, finding a voice inside of yourself that's your own voice. And learning to love again the stranger yourself is no small thing, because most of the time we're able to love just about anybody but ourselves. And do a lot of things and say a lot of things to ourselves, both in our heads and sometimes out loud that are far from kind. Paying attention to ourselves in this way is really a huge element of what mindfulness-based stress reduction is all about. And what we'll be talking about today, we'll be giving some instructions and mindfulness practices and give you some didactic material about mindfulness-based stress reductions, its origins, and how it's structured, and what we do in classes to help people that are coming in with stress-related illnesses, uh, conditions, things like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, heart disease, cancer, anything that, for whatever reason, allopathic medicine has come to its limits of helping us with. And we're often told by our very kindly physician, there's, there's a need for you to take better care of yourself. And sometimes they send you out of the office with a smile or even a hug, but you, you go off a little bewildered, wondering just how. What is, what is it I'm supposed to do to take care of myself? Really, this is a lot what MBSR is about. Showing up to be with yourself, start noticing these thoughts, how they lead to certain emotions, how the certain thoughts and emotions lead to certain sensations of the body and behaviors, and starting to pay attention to yourself just like we did. You get glimpses into your role in the pain equation and the stress equation. So at the beginning of our class, Many of us working in this field of mindfulness-based stress reduction will say a couple of things. One of them is 
there's more right with you than wrong with you. And that can be astonishing to some people just arriving because they're going through some pretty difficult things, uh, sometimes terminal conditions. Uh, their lives have been devastated by a horrible traffic accident. Still, we'll say there's more right with you than wrong with you. And we won't make it as an injunction. We'll put it out there as a possibility. And we'd like to invite you to take a look at this, your own self, to see if it's true as we go along in this program. And the second thing we may say is there's more you can do for yourself than anyone else can when it comes to stress and pain and chronic conditions. And an MBSR class is a place where you can start investigating and discovering just what that means for you personally. So we'll be talking a great deal about this, but we'll be putting also a great deal of time into actually doing the practices of mindfulness meditation in here today so that you may learn what are we doing in these classes in terms of teaching people these practices that cultivate mindfulness. So mindfulness is a a mental state, we could characterize it as being present on purpose, without judging anything, without striving towards some goal. It's a mental state that grows by doing mindfulness practices. The more you invest in mindfulness practices, the more you grow the mental state. So we want to give you a real taste of the practices that help you grow this state of mindfulness today. And right at the beginning, I'd like to ask, how many people here are new to mindfulness? Mindfulness meditation, thank you. How many people here are new to Spirit Rock? Well, welcome here. Nice to have you. How many people here are health professionals of some sort? Oh, great. Like me getting my CEUs today, <laughs> which I found out I can do. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And um, so um, one of the elements that will make up an MBSR class is not only coming here. It's not like we're going to be just teachers and we're lecturing. We got PowerPoint. You'll see no PowerPoint <laughs> set up here. We're not going to be not take notes and we're going to test you on this. We're going to try to facilitate one of the most important elements of learning in an MBSR class, and that's the connectedness between everybody in this room, the kind of uh, community we form that's built upon a certain amount of trust and safety and willingness to look at yourself and reveal yourself to another person, or at least one. Through this relationship, a kind of relationship we rarely have, and we're talking about our own ways of creating suffering in our own lives, which we often keep to ourselves, and sometimes we don't even know what it is we do that creates so much trouble for ourselves. Of course, if we were to talk to our spouse or our friend or our child, they would tell us immediately what we do that causes suffering for ourselves and everybody else. But a lot of the times we're out of touch with that. And 
So one of the ways I'd like to start today is to invite you to turn to the person next to you and, and introduce yourself and uh, talk a bit about what brings you here. What really brings you here? What, what do you want to get out of this day? And we'll ring the bell in a few minutes and bring us back to a larger group. What brings you here?
So I can see that um, already we got some of the connectedness going that we were just talking about. Isn't it, isn't it good just to talk a little bit to meet the other people with you're with? So I, I'd like to hear a few of the reasons. We'd like to hear a few of the reasons. Why are you here? Yes. Me? Yes. Um, we are um, in a Musara group study. Uh, Musara is the study of um, Jewish meditation in our synagogue. So we came because we. Oh. We came because um, this is kind of we're going to take it back to our 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 little Musar group to talk about uh, mindfulness and and sitting with ourselves and. So we we tried to get our whole group to come, but um, they said you guys can go to do that. So that's I think what we're here for, and for ourselves, we have a coupleship that tries to put meditation and um, mindfulness with each other, and so we can strengthen our bond too. Lovely. Did you? Thank you. Uh, I'm here because I run around in my brain all the time and uh, don't stay present and. Uh, um, was diagnosed uh, three and a half years ago with Parkinson's, and it put me in the frame of mind that thinking about the future, worrying about the future is so counterproductive, and I've been attempting different ways to kind of just be in the present moment and be positive and grateful. Thank you. Anybody else do that? (laughs) Maybe it's a little too loud. I know, I'm going to bring it down. Okay, that better. Yes, back at the back. Uh, yeah, I came because um, I have done meditation for many years, and I want to understand the difference between. Um, well, I'd like to understand what mindfulness-based stress reduction is, and to be able to take some of this information and bring it back to my practice because I make recommendations uh, to family sometimes. I see children and how this applies to working with children and what conditions might be helpful. So to understand um, many times people need more uh, information rather than this is just good for you um, and everybody's doing it. And so it would be helpful uh, that to understand something about a little bit about the science behind it so, um, because not everybody is open to just, you know, this is really good for you and you should relax uh, and do it and it'll make you feel better. So, that a little bit of structure from that angle of it so it can be more useful to me and maybe to other people that are mental health professionals uh, in working with people that aren't uh, particularly knowledgeable or open to this approach. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Who else? Over here. I, I took the... Uh, oops, sorry. Thank you. I took the MBSR course just recently in the fall of last year, and um, it was great. Um, very life-changing. I was telling my new friend here, um, that it really gave me a lot of clarity about things that were going on in my life um, and felt that it was life-changing. 
But after the course, the holidays happened, and I don't feel that I've been um, moving forward, integrating it into my life as much as I would like. And I've been here to Spirit Rock before. And when I saw that this was coming up, I thought, okay, this is just another touch point for me to continue to try to integrate it into my life. So I am really looking forward to um, getting back into it. So thank you for coming. Very here. important points. Thank you. It's not just something you're going to get some education about, and then, oh, I got that. This, it's going to change your life. Pract- this practice of mindfulness is something we engage in. It's a practice. It's a day-to-day, moment-to-moment thing. Really easy to take an MBSR class, and then a couple of months later, have kind of got that in the background and launch it off and all of a sudden you have that tight jaw again. You don't know <laughs> how, how it got there. Maybe one more. Hi. Um, so I've been working with um, having a little bit more control over the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So working with that um, through meditation, and I'm interested in different techniques. Um, and I also read about this particular technique in a book by a woman who uh, helped herself with autoimmune disease through different practices, yoga, meditation, and specifically she cited this, and ever since then I've been very interested in what it's about. Thank you. So just um, maybe a show of hands. How many are here because of um, continuing education? So we already asked a few questions. Okay. How many are here because you have stress in your life? <laughs> Look around. Keep your hands up. You may be in good company. How many of you are here living with, with some pain conditions? Look around. How many of us here are living with some illnesses? Look around. Yeah. This is our human condition. How many of us here have some anxiety? Yeah. Depression? Yeah. So, um, the origins of uh, MBSR, which is the acronym for Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, uh, has its its origin was was founded by John Kabat-Zinn, that uh, uh, some of you, I, I know, know that. And um, just a little bit of a history about how this came to be is that uh, John was going to school in Boston at MIT, working on his PhD in molecular biology. And uh, evidently, uh, this was in the in the 60s, early 70s, and Philip Kaplow, who was a Zen master, came to MIT and gave a talk on mindfulness. And 
John became very uh, like, wow, this is like a whole discipline of beginning to pay attention on purpose to the workings of one's own mind and body. You all can hear me okay? Okay, good. And uh, so he began to practice very sincerely, uh, mindfulness practice, first with the Korean Zen master, Sinsaniam, and then later practicing Vipassana insight meditation at um, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Eventually he graduated with, uh, from MIT with a PhD in molecular biology and was hired as a faculty instructor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester. And so he began his career uh, teaching in, in a medical school and he continued to practice mindfulness meditation. And when he went on a meditation retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, the story goes that um, at some point during the retreat, he was reflecting on his love of medicine and his love of meditation. And an inspiration arose where he said, why not bring these two things together, he reflected within himself. And you know, this could actually happen at the, at, at the, at the medical center. And actually, it could actually spread throughout the United States. Why, actually, it could just spread around the world, which it has done from that inspiration. I've talked with him about this, and he says, yeah, it's kind of like a deja vu, because in that moment of that inspiration, there was this inspiration, it, it could work here, it could work everywhere. And it came out of, you know, I, I, was very, I was very touched asking you all to raise your hands. Who's living with stress? Who's living with anxiety? Who's living with pain? Who's living with illness? Who's living with depression? So many hands were raised. This is our human condition. The teachings of, uh, in the Dharma of, within Buddhism, there's these powerful reflections that no one can escape from aging, illness, death, and separation. And so these teachings were so powerful for John that he received at the Insight Meditation Society that it inspired him to want to bring these in a way of language that could be very helpful and useful for more of mainstream Americana. So sometimes we will say that, that, that the teachings that John extrapolated upon on what's taught within Buddhist meditative traditions, it's not a decontextualization of these teachings, but a recontextualization. And of course, the experimental place to do this is Worcester, Massachusetts, which if you've been to Worcester, you know right away it's not Berkeley. It's not Santa Cruz. It's not Northern California. It's a blue, uh, you know, this is a, a labor town, not Northern California. And it was a very uh, amazing place for him to begin to uh, develop this eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program, begin to offer to people living with stress, pain, and illness. He appealed to physicians at the medical center at UMass and said, you know, we're starting this mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And... Um, for those patients that you are having a difficult time working with the management of living with stress, living with illness, living with pain, send them here. 
And as a scientist, he began to also do very early research on the benefits or the efficacy of mindfulness-based stress reduction and began to publish in medical journals of its efficacy. These early studies were not double-blind studies, but they were enough of a, of a, of a study to, to point to researchers and to science, something is going on here, something is being reported. And you know, since that time, there's been more studies that have uh, shown um, the efficacy of, of mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. But in those early years, he did like a three-year follow-up study of those living with a diagnosis of panic and anxiety disorder. They found that after three years, people were living much better with their anxiety. Also, there was a four-year follow-up study of those living with chronic pain that found after four years that, that they reported that, the, that they lived with their pain much better than before. There was even a very interesting study on people living with psoriasis, a skin condition, and after receiving photolite therapy, there was a group of people that were meditating while they were receiving the photolite therapy, which is the standard treatment for psoriasis, and another group that were receiving photolite therapy that were just sitting in the booth receiving it without meditating. And it found, uh, surprisingly, that the meditators had a much better response to uh, the light treatment than those that didn't. Of course, as time has gone on, and we'll speak about this a little bit later, that there's actually fields of neuroscience that have grown in the studies of meditation. One particular field is called affective neuroscience, and Dr. Richard Davison, who's a neuroscientist at the University of Madison in Wisconsin, has done incredible research on the effects of meditation on the brain and, and his um, research on neuroplasticity as well as even immune response that found that actually those that meditated and received a flu immunization shot showed a more robust immune response three months out. So mindfulness has grown, as uh, one person said, and it's is very true. Um, it's actually become kind of a hot item. And in some ways that's good, in some ways it can bring distortions. I want to just acknowledge that. And again, at the same time, I think anything that we can do to bring more awareness and more heart into the world is a good thing. But we also want to understand that, that mindfulness comes from an ancient Buddhist uh, meditative tradition and a Buddhist psychology, and, and it's, a, it's a psychology of... Um, liberation. And when we speak about liberation, we're speaking about beginning to get more insight into the stories that we've told ourselves, the stories perhaps that we've become enslaved by, and see that there's, perhaps these are limited definitions, that there's possibilities to become more free. And so we'll today um, you know, speak about some of these parallels and um, Yeah, I want to maybe just speak back again just for a few more moments, and then Steve will share, um, that I have the opportunity um, to do a lot of teacher training with mindfulness-based stress reduction all over the world. I also work for the Center for Mindfulness at UMass Medical Center. I'm on their teaching team, teaching both nationally and internationally. And, you know, just very recently, last November, I was in, in China, and we actually offered the very first mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training program there. And it was just amazing to hear, here we are in a land where actually mindfulness um, flourished 
a few thousand years ago, but now the, the national religion in China is atheism. And, and uh, you could never imagine that this would actually be reintroduced in China, but because of the brilliance of John Kabat-Zinn bringing this into the mainstream, having this be part of science, the recontextualization that it's not just about Buddhist psychology, but there's also um, group experiential education, there's uh, neuroscience, neurophysiology, stress psychology, that there's many underpinnings that influence mindfulness-based stress reduction that is actually being accepted in the Chinese medical system, in the Chinese psychological society to bring this in. This is a health service. There is so much need for uh, mindfulness. So, and, and, I, and, I, and I've been to many other countries and just being with people that are training and they're so excited to want to bring this to their people. So something's really happening here and it's kind of extraordinary. And never forget a few years ago, I was at a, an international mindfulness-based stress reduction conference and one of the keynote speakers was a U.S. Congress, congressman who I didn't know at the time, um, Tim Ryan who later actually wrote a book called A Mindful Nation. I mean, who could have imagined this? I mean, growing up in the 50s and the 60s, I mean, I mean, you know, I almost like was starting to pledge allegiance for crying out loud. I mean, this is a U.S. congressman speaking about mindfulness and writing a book on it. I mean, it's like who could imagine these type of things as it's beginning to spread more and more through the mainstream. So mindfulness-based stress reduction, just as a brief overview, but maybe a question. How many of you have taken an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction class? So there's been some of you, not, not too many. So it, just to give you an offer a template, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program goes for eight weeks. We meet once an hour, once a week for two and a half hours. In the sixth week, there is a day-long session to bring together the different practices that we've been learning through the first six weeks. In each class, we are doing meditation practice as well as mindful movements such as yoga, walking meditation, this small group discussion, large group discussion, presentational themes such as what is perception, investigating mindless reactivity, these patterns that begin to uh, fuel, um, maladaptive coping styles and dealing with stress to becoming mindful and developing what we call a mediated mindful stress response. What's the difference between mindlessly reacting and mindfully responding to a situation? We're also bringing mindfulness into the relational, into communication. So within these eight weeks, we're bringing together many different aspects of bringing mindfulness into our lives and working with stress and pain and illness. To accompany this, we actually have uh, those that are enrolled doing actively meditation practices such as the body scan meditation, sitting meditation, they're practicing daily, 45 minutes a day, really bringing this into their lives in a formal way, and informally bringing our mindfulness into our day-to-day -day experiences of life. We actually have another acronym that actually might be very helpful, and it's actually on the handout that we uh, gave to you that was on the chair back there. If you didn't get one, there will be one there for you. But one of these acronyms that we use as far as in our day-to-day -day informal mindfulness practice, this acronym is called STOP, S-T-O-P. And what that means is S is to stop, 
T to take a breath. O to observe what's actually happening in your body and mind right now. And P proceeding on with more presence. And it's a very wonderful practice during the day to stop for a few moments, take a few breaths, observe what's happening in the body and mind. And some people will notice in that moment of stopping, taking a breath and observing that the shoulders are up higher than the ears. Didn't even know that. Now I know that and I can bring it down. So some very practical applications of recalibration as we learn during our day-to-day life to begin to remember to come back into the present moment, to stop, to take a breath, to observe. Perhaps I'm at the office and I'm working on the computer, or I'm at home and I'm working on the computer and I'm doing all this work and sending off emails and this and that. Meanwhile, my bladder is beginning to say, please relieve me, please relieve me. But have you ever played the email urination game? One more email, one more email, ride that bladder, one more email. Maybe even forget about it. And Anyways, your, neurolo- your nephrologist and your urologist would also be very happy if you would void more sooner than later. And so as we become mindful, we begin to get more in touch with this body and mind. We begin to take care of it. Maybe I realize I'm spinning trying to figure something out, and I realize I haven't stretched, I haven't taken any food, and I, I take a stretch, and I eat a little bit of food, and all of a sudden I come back... To, to the computer or whatever I'm doing, and all of a sudden that project is going easily now because I'm recalibrated again. So we're working with bringing our mindfulness, we can say, as a way of life, bringing it into the informal activities of day-to-day living as well as formally at times, whether we're lying on a bed, sitting on a chair, sitting on a bench, sitting on a zafu, doesn't matter what you know, the, as far as our posture, to be comfortable and to be awake and to do some formal guided meditation practice. And so during these eight weeks, the participants are actively working with practices at home. We reinforce in each class by doing practice and time to discuss what we're learning about ourselves through doing the practice as well as bringing in these presentational themes of perception and reactivity, responding, communication, and so forth. So that's I'm trying to give you a little bit of a, a sweeping little bit of an overview of what actually happens inside an MBSR class. We also feel it's very important, and we'll speak about this later today, the importance of ongoing support. Uh, after the eight weeks, it's very important Uh, Actually, the hospital that I work at at El Camino Hospital in Mountain View, we have a weekly drop-in free alumni meditation group that people can come to once a week. Eight times a year, we have day-long sessions. The alumni are always invited to come back free as a way to renew their practice. So also that importance of helping to support someone in the practice after they've completed the class. So that's kind of a a broad sweep here. And um, I'll pass the torch. Maybe to play off some of the things Bob was just sharing. That um, one, one of the things that happens as you start paying attention to yourself and in, a, in an MBSR class, right away as we did here, we are taking time just to be with ourselves. And at the very beginning of class, we'll, we may do an introduction and ask what really brings you here, like we did here. But in a class, we'll take it further. What 
really, really brings you here, what really, 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 really brings you here. And people start dropping down, and they're sharing with one other person. And we'll go around the room. We'll ask, what, who are you? What brings you here? And I remember from a few years ago, one woman was saying, oh, I'm here because my stupid dentist says that I clench my jaw. And that's why I've got this thing called TMJ disorder. It hurts. But I do not clench my jaw. And I've been paying attention for a long time, and I don't clench my jaw. But I'm here because he told me I can't really go forward, and my doctor thinks it's true, too. And, and sure enough, you know, we're talking, and the class goes on. It was about the sixth week before she finally copped to it. She, she says, well, it's true. <laughs> I, um, I wasn't noticing that I do clench my jaw because I clench it all the time, <laughs> constantly. How I many of us it. in our jaw right now? <laughs> And, and, and it seems to have something to do with my anxiety, which I've also tried to conceal from everybody, which is actually quite large. I'm, and I do it just with my thoughts. I get to thinking that I'm, I'm not good enough, and I don't quite make the grade, and I don't want others to figure that out. And I've had to perform ever since I was little, and it turns, turns out that has something to do with jaw clenching. It took her six weeks to be able to say this in front of others. Has she ever said it to her husband, to her sister, her best friend? No. Do we even say these things to ourselves? No. We live in another self that uh, is a, a kind of a concoction uh, um, that we've created, uh, conditioned self. And this self, I found it... Uh, wonderful reading from Margaret Wheatley. She writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. We create ourselves by what we choose to notice. Once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we have created and self-seal. And then, we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. We live in this self now. This is how I look at things. I, I've been doing this a long time. But when we finally, in, in a diving into presence and just being in awareness, you start noticing the thoughts and the emotions, and you see this these thoughts about the future are creating the anxiety, which all anxiety is created about thoughts about the future, anticipatory thinking. And of course, we throw in another little piece about imagining the worst in the future, called catastrophizing. And then we ruminate about that, which is a thing cows do. They chew the grass again and again and again. And again. They throw it up in mouth. They chew it again and again and again. One of my friends is a farmer, and he says, you know when they're doing that, those contented California cows sitting in the grass, they're ruminating. It stinks to high heaven. Even the most seasoned of rancher cannot get near them without puking. It's terrible. So I call it stinking thinking. 
I'm doing my stinking thinking again, and my jaw's tight. My lips are poked out. My shoulder's up. And we go, oh. It's only when we get outside of our normal frame of self-referencing that we notice something new. We can break the seal. We have a chance of changing. So that our way of looking at things transforms things. Perception transforms the world I'm living in. I have my little warp and coloring. I make things better or worse by my way of looking at things. I want certain things to happen. And I've got a lot invested in this wanting. And I want you to think a certain thing about me. I want you to think pretty well about me right now as I'm talking in front of you. I want you to think I know what I'm talking about and I got it pretty together. And these the certain ways I want to be perceived have to do again with this whole thing of perception. I don't see the world as it is. I see it the way I am. I transform the world by my way of looking at things. And a huge piece of awareness as we grow in cultivating awareness and mindfulness practice enables us to see this particular character I've got going and how he's distorting things. My wife has told me for years about this particular character and how annoying he can be. And pretty soon you kind of discover it's annoying to yourself too. I'm doing it again. And, and so that you start catch yourself. So a huge piece of practice and bringing awareness into perception has a, a lot to do with compassion, self-compassion, loving kindness. It's being aware on purpose with kindness. And so it's not judging myself. How many people in here judge themselves? How many people in here judge other people? How many people do this most constantly? And you start sitting with yourself and you're going, oh my God, this is huge. And and I never quite make the grade. No wonder my shoulders hurt, my jaw hurts. And if we can start paying attention to perception in this way, we can interrupt this automaticity of thought, emotion, reaction, thought, emotion, sensation, behavior. We can get out of the kind of automaticity of our life and choose something new. Begin another way. This is a huge thing. We don't do this overnight. You're not going to just do it in eight weeks of a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. You've spent a lifetime creating this neurosis. You're, you're an expert at it. It's easy to keep it going and it's very difficult to start interrupting it by, oh, I'm doing it again, starting over. So a lot of practice is beginner's mind, uh, breaking the seal. Of noticing something new means I've got to start over because I keep catching myself again and again, off in the future again, ruminating about the past again, worried about my performance again. Thinking everybody else is the problem. It's embarrassing 
<laughs> it's embarrassing when you start seeing how much you're the one creating the problem. And even to confess it to another person, that's a good beginning of a starting to work of transformation. So perception is huge. And we spend a big part of each class, beginning of each class, and focusing on different exercises and different intentions that help us cultivate our awareness of our perception, how I'm looking at things. Things like, we, we create suffering in so many ways. We create distress, distress by wanting something we can't, we don't have, by not wanting something we do have, by liking this and not liking that. We, we even do this kind of habitually and automatically. Oh, the, the debates are on. I should listen to that so I shouldn't keep up. And then you start watching these things and your jaw starts getting tightened. <laughs> And your stomach is going, <laughs> and then you think about it. Your jaw gets tight. Your, your stomach, and, and your stomach, it's like, oh my God, this is me. This is how I do it. And what do I do it the most? Well, when we're going to bed, and we haven't got our normal things to occupy our minds with, that we can distract ourselves with. There's the rumination again, and there's. The future, we're doomed. We're definitely doomed. <laughs> it's hard to go to sleep. So coming back to the present moment via the breath, awareness, you find your way out of the automaticity of your mind. The, one, one teacher I read this year, uh, Tony Bernard, talks about the want monster the want monster. And she was referring to it as a, one of her friends has very little kids and going to the supermarket with your four-year-old and your five-year-old. You get a real good idea of what the want monster is. <laughs> They're driving you crazy. You're trying to shop. And in the midst of your being driven crazy and trying to keep your composure and not be a screaming lunatic in the safe way at your child, you're keeping it cool and clenching your jaw and saying, no, no, no. And then there's usually some older woman that comes up to you looking at your children and says something like, you're so lucky. Do you realize these are the most wonderful days of your life? And you're going, are you crazy? What we really got going on in our heads, you know, it's a lot different, a lot different than what others may be projecting on us. So one other, one other thing from Hayam Jino. Uh, he's talking about being a teacher in a classroom, but see if you can apply this to your own mind and your own life. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable and joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or 
heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated. If a person is humanized or dehumanized, how do I interrupt this automatic reaction and go from the reaction to the response? Victor Frankl is said to have written that between the stimulus and the response, there's a space, and in that space lies our power and our freedom. That I interrupt the automaticity. I respond rather than react. It's, it's triumph. It's a personal triumph. Every, every time you can do that, it's like, I did it. Just then, I did it. I was about ready to... I was thinking this, and I was feeling this, and I was about to open my mouth and have a toad leap out. But I didn't say it. And it's like, wow, it's much better to stop at that point rather than have to eat the toad later. (laughs) When your wife reminds you. (laughs) And so there's a little bit about mindfulness and perception, what we'll do to try to cultivate this within our practices in a classroom. I I can see by the way you respond and you get it. This isn't new to you. But actually developing some skill with this means paying attention in a huge way to your (coughs) body. And body being a, a means through which we can start discovering the relationship of our thoughts and emotions and physical sensations and have a means through which we can interrupt the automaticity to release some where it's holding. So many years ago, I'm doing my morning meditation practice, and I notice my lips hurt. My whole mouth is pursed out. And so as I would with anybody, I I encourage myself, well, rather than just relax, try to figure out what are your lips doing pursed like this. And I realized in, in a moment that I haven't been meditating at all for the last five or ten minutes. I've been having an angry internal dialogue with my neighbor whose dog is barking again while I'm trying to do my meditation. And I'm telling him about his dog and his thoughtlessness. And I'm really angry. And we're having a fight. And I make a discovery. Wow, there's a relationship between me pursing my lips and my anger. Ever since then, I've been scared of those old people that have really wrinkly lips. Because, you know, they've been pissed off a long time. All of us are doing this in our own way. We've got our shoulders, our jaw. You notice yourself. You'll notice when your lips... And so I notice now the lips are pursing. I'll notice that before I notice I'm angry. I'll notice my shoulders are sore before I notice... I'm in the future again, imagining the worst. And so the physiological clue helps us. And one of the ways we help cultivate this attention to our bodies is with mindful yoga practices. So the classes at MBSR include training in mindfulness meditation, training in mindful hatha yoga practices. And I think maybe um, this is a good place to make a shift to actually 
doing a little bit of mindful yoga practice. So let's do some standing practice today. Since we haven't got much room in here. Steve? Some people may not be able to stand, so I can maybe yeah. sit in the chair and model that. So. That's okay. And Bob reminded me to tell you that some of you may not be able to stand, and that's perfectly all right. You can do these practices sitting in a chair. And Bob's going to be sitting to model that. And for me to do this, I'm going to have to get off of my stage. Oh, no, come over here. So... So mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to this moment. And a very huge element of mindfulness practice is based upon mindfulness of the body. We cultivate this through mindful yoga practices. Start living these practices in our life. So very simple. Just reaching over your head with one arm. Reaching up and seeing if you can push up one of these ceiling squares as you're breathing at the same time. Notice the stretch you're having in your arm, reaching high as you breathe. Notice your breath as you're reaching up. And Bob reminds me, too, to give a lot of precautions. So let's change our arms. Listen to your body. If your body tells you this isn't a good thing to do, don't do any of these things. If your doctor would say, what's the matter with you? So again, just reaching over your head. You you can take this all the way through the whole side of your body if you bend a little bit too. Uh, Pay attention to your breathing. You find that you can sometimes extend a stretch on an out-breath by letting go some. So rather than effortfulness to get somewhere, we're letting the body open by just breathing Inviting a release, waiting for a release. You can get a stretch across your whole side of the body if you want. Bringing that arm back down. And just feel your body for a few moments just after doing these very simple (coughs) yoga moves. Mindfulness of the body. Feeling the body. Noticing the breath. Never pushing yourself too far, too hard. Just going to the edge now with both hands, both arms, reaching up and breathing as you got them up here. See, with an out breath, you can reach up a little higher. And bring your arms back down again. And once again, reaching up. Breathing out. And bringing your hands back down again. One more, bringing them up. Now with both your hands up, let's do a turn over to one side. Just a little ways where your body tells you it's good. Breathe into the center. Breathe out again. Go the other side. As you breathe in, Come up to center again. Let's go back to the first side. Again. So I've been going for, to the county offices and teaching people these things for years. And One more. 
and I'll go there sometimes to deliver flyers, and I'll see them all standing up in their cubicles doing this. It's pretty cool. It probably doesn't make the supervisors very happy. They're not punching away. Just to pause and feel your body. So let's do some things with our neck, just very mindful neck rolls. So coordinate this with your breath. Breathe out, allow your head to roll down to the front. Breathe in. Breathe out, allow it to go to the left side or right side. Breathing in and out, moving it to 145 degree angle. So each out breath, we go back around. As your neck falls over to the left side, you feel the stretch on the right side. Breathing out. Don't go too far back. Head fall forward. One more of these mindful neck rolls. So out breath is a lovely place to discover releases you can never force. Releases are always gifts. They're like discoveries. Back to center. We'll do the same thing with our shoulders. Our right shoulder, didn't matter, start left or right. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, it comes up, bring it around, breathing out, drops down. Imagine getting up from your keyboard every so often in the middle of the mindfulness urination game. And <laughs> I switch sides now, rolling the other way, that is. If it was going from back to front before, breathing in, comes up, breathing out, goes down. Three on each side, then we're going to switch to the other arm. with awareness, with kindness, with love. Never pushing yourself, but listening to yourself. This is bringing mindfulness to the body. It's what yoga is, really, a union of mind and body. Good. Now let's shake all that out. Let's just stand here and feel our body standing over our feet, breathing, breathing in, breathing out. And we'll do a, a mindfulness chair pose. Pretty simple. Listen to your knees. Don't go down too far if your knees tell you that's not nice. Breathing in. Breathing out. Again. Wait for the breath to move you and follow it. One more. I know I did one extra because I kind of like doing that.
Oh, let's just find our balance over our feet for a few moments and what it is to be standing. If you've ever watched a toddler figure this one out, you know it's no small thing and it's quite hilarious. <laughs> but when they get it, it's such a great celebration. And so you've got a big toe and a little toe in each foot and inside of the heel and outside of the heel in each foot. And if you really pay attention, you'll notice that your body's being supported by these four points on each foot, four all together. And if you just rock a little bit from this side and that side, you can feel these places of connection with the earth. This is mindfulness of the body. This is being in touch with literally with the earth beneath this floor. Notice too, as you're doing this, what's it like in your hips as you roll around? You may notice that you'll even feel this more prominently if you close your eyes, being mindful of balance. See how eyes are? They take you outside yourself. We're breathing and rocking. What's it like in your knees right now? Are they locked or open, slightly open? What's it like in your hips? Are you holding or releasing? If you keep on moving up your body, can there be a certain extension between the crown of your head and your pelvis as you're growing taller? as you're rocking and moving. As your spine lengthens, your back widens. What's your neck like? Can it be free as you're doing this? Let's bring awareness with a certain amount of intention into the body. This is a good place to live as a way of life in everything we're doing, as we're driving the car, as we're sitting at the keyboard, as we're talking to a colleague that just plain irritates us. Coming back to stillness now, let's just stand for a few more moments and we're going to make a transition. And perhaps offer yourself a certain amount of gratitude and thanks to yourself for just taking a little bit of time to be with yourself with this way, this kind, with this kindness and this kind of mindfulness and presence. This is mindfulness of the body, central to practice. Thank you. Let's take our seats again.
And so from the mindfulness of the body in movement in yoga, we're going to continue with some meditation practice on the mindfulness of the body in stillness with a body scan. And body scan is um, one of the very first primary practices that is taught in mindfulness-based stress reduction. And so want to support you to find a position where you can be comfortable and awake. Let that be your guideline. So if you want to lie down, you're welcome to as well. And uh, sometimes people like what's known as the astronaut position. You lie down and place your legs on top of a chair. But as whatever way that supports you to be awake, so remember that word, awake, <laughs> and also comfortable, because if you're too uncomfortable, forget it, I'm out of here. If you're so comfortable, good night. So find that place where you can be comfortable and alert, and it's also fine even to stand. If you're feeling like you're pretty tired, standing and doing the body scan is totally fine. If you feel like you're more prone for sleeping, you're welcome to meditate with your eyes open. If you're lying down, you could have your elbows on the floor with your hands up in the air, and if you fall asleep, you might hear a little sound that wakes you up. So there's many different little tricks. So just finding a place where you can be comfortable and awake. We're going to do about 40 minutes, so that might, you might, after hearing this change, decide to change your position. <laughs> Sometimes people ask, is it okay to move when you meditate? And the answer is fine. Just move mindfully. Is it okay to itch? It's fine to itch. Itch mindfully. So everything can be part of the practice. You don't have to be crammed in like a pretzel. I'm glad some of you are seeing Yes, we have extra cushions and mats, and so help yourself to be comfortable and awake. And as we begin to settle and just taking some time to welcome ourselves into some time of practice. And maybe again, a little bit of a, sometimes I like to call it a weather report, just sensing into the body, because in some ways we are kind of like internal meteorologists and we're being mindful of the weather systems that are present. So maybe just for a moment, just sensing into the body and acknowledging the weather conditions that are there. Warm, cool, itchy, achy. Tired, energized. So just acknowledging how you're feeling in the body. And of course, part of that weather report might include acknowledging any thoughts or emotions that are present. So it all can be part of the meditation. So a little bit of a mindful check-in again as we begin to settle and become present.
And then just slowly and gradually, after some moments of settling and acknowledging what's present within you, the body, the mind, is to begin to bring your attention to the breathing. Breathing normally, breathing naturally, becoming mindful of the breath in and out. Of course, due to our uniqueness as human beings, there may be different areas that some of us feel the breath to be more prominent and distinct. And sometimes it's very helpful to go to the place where you feel the breath in your body to be the most prominent and distinct. (coughs) For some, it may be in the inner nostrils, the tip of the nose, the upper lip. Others may feel the breath more prominently in the chest or the belly or the back or other places in the body. Some might even feel this whole body organism as it breathes in and breathes out. So wherever you feel the breath to be prominent, letting awareness rest at that place and just being aware of the breath as you breathe in and being aware or knowing We could say that you're breathing out as you're breathing out. So there's this knowing quality, the knowing that you're breathing in as you're breathing in, in direct experience, not to be imagined, analyzed, visualized, that the direct experience, the knowing as you breathe in that you're breathing in, the knowing that you're breathing out as you're breathing out, being present. And of course, there will be a number of times that you may discover that your mind has wandered off. This is normal. Sometimes this is one of the very first insights we get in mindfulness meditation is the understanding how busy the mind is going off into the future or into the past. So once you recognize that you've wandered off, acknowledge wherever you went and then just come back to the breath again. And even if you do this every other moment, not a problem. There's a Christian mystic, St. Francis de Sales, he says, even if you bring your mind back every other moment, your hour would be well employed. This is a very kind way of practicing. So just acknowledging the wanderings of the mind and coming back to breathing in and breathing out taking our lives one breath at a time.
And so gently withdrawing from the breath and want to just offer a few words of an introduction to the body scan. I'll start with uh, it's a poem by Martha Elliott that says that your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse of all of the learnings and thoughts and emotions. So help yourself and let the learning emerge and take shape. Your history is here inside your body. And there's a very beautiful verse from the Buddha. It says something similar. It says that within this fathom-long body, and a fathom is a maritime measurement about the length of a human being, says that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its origin, its beginning, its ending, its cessation. The pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. Our history is here inside our body. And so the body scan is a practice of bringing awareness into the body sensing and feeling what's present physically. And at times, of course, the body may evoke different thoughts and emotions, and that too is to be included as part of the practice to be acknowledged in whatever's here. But we always work first with entering in the doorway of the felt sense, the sensations within the body. And as we go through the body, part by part, we may come across areas <clears throat> that are tight and tense. And if you become aware of that, if you can soften it, let that happen. If you're unable to, let it be. So there's an even balance to things. Softening what's possible, letting be what's not at that moment. Acknowledging, of course, any thoughts and emotions that may arise as well. And of course, as we go through this body, even though we all have human bodies, our bodies may be a little bit different. Some of us may have actually missing parts of the body or added parts. I've got a screw in my foot. Some of us have parts of the body that may not be uh, working the way that they once did. So whatever is present with you in your body, to acknowledge what's there physically, mentally, or emotionally. We start with the body scan with the left foot, and someone asked John Kabat-Zinn once, why did you start with the left foot? He said, well, I wanted to start with the feet, and I just picked the left because, I don't know, left foot. But the purpose and intention behind this is that I wanted uh, to start at the foot to get away from the head. And that's the furthest place. So find that spot in your left foot where you feel the point of contact of your left foot on the floor. <clears throat> Those lying down, it may be the back of the heel. Those sitting in the chair, or if your knees are up high, if you're lying down, you might feel the bottom of the heel and the sole of the foot. 
or perhaps sitting cross-legged, you might feel the side of the foot. So wherever you feel the most prominent point of contact, that introduces you to the world of sensation, to the felt sense of the body. And from that point of contact, letting awareness begin to spread into the heel, into the sole of the foot, the entire bottom of the foot, goes into the toes, the top of the foot, the back of the foot, the Achilles tendon area is, and up into the left ankle joint. So with awareness, scanning this body, sensing and feeling from that point of contact into the left foot, into the left ankle, and just being mindful of whatever it is that you're directly experiencing. Maybe coolness, itches, tingling, maybe more of a pleasant or unpleasant feeling, or maybe it's kind of just neutral, not much of anything. And so even if it's not much of anything, you can just be aware of not much of anything, more neutral. Of course, it may potentially for some bring up different thoughts and emotions. I've had a very severe foot injury that can be conjured up at times. So whatever is present for you, acknowledging what's here in the left foot, in ankle. And then just gradually extending awareness from the left foot and ankle into the lower left leg, into the calf, into the shin. Sensing and feeling into this lower left leg, the front of it, the back of it, the sides, the inside. Acknowledging what's present in the lower left leg. And, of course, the lower left leg is connected above into the left knee. Welcome to begin to include that, sensing into the left knee. And just acknowledging whatever is present. Again, that quality of like a meteorologist reporting and direct experience what's there. 
it evokes an unpleasant feeling, then just acknowledging this is unpleasant. If there's a different thought or emotion, acknowledging the feelings. Nothing needs to be pushed away or added on. We don't even have to try to relax or do anything, just whatever's indirect experience in the left knee. From the left knee, gradually letting awareness extend into the left thigh. The front of it, the back, the sides, the inside. Sensing into the upper left leg, into the thigh, and of course it has its connection into the left hip socket being present. Scanning with awareness, sensing into the left hip, acknowledging what's here. So from the left thigh, feeling into the hip, and of course this hip is indeed connected below into the thigh, into the knee, to the lower left leg, into the left ankle, the left foot. And then then letting our awareness Shift now to the right foot, beginning again at that point of contact where you feel the right foot on the floor, and spreading the awareness into the entire bottom of the right foot, the heel, the sole of the foot, the arch. Sensing and feeling into the top of the right foot, of course the toes, the top of the foot, Behind in the back, the Achilles tendon giving rise into the right ankle joint. Sensing and feeling into the right foot with awareness being present.
And letting awareness extend upwards from the right foot and ankle into the lower right leg, into the calf, into the shin, the front, the back, the sides, the inside of the lower right leg, and of course, its extension into the right knee joint, being present, scanning this body. Acknowledging what's here. Acknowledging the physical sensations, acknowledging if it evokes any thoughts and emotions. Lower right leg into the knee. And from the lower right leg and knee, gradually extending and feeling into the upper right leg, into the thigh, the front, the back, each of the sides, into the inside, sensing into the right thigh. These large muscle groups, quadriceps in the front, hamstrings in the back, sensing and feeling into the thigh, acknowledging what's present. And of course, the right thigh is connected above into the right hip and welcome to begin to include that as well, sensing from the thigh and into the right hip. Now letting awareness extend from the right hip across into the left hip as we begin to sense into the pelvic girdle, the pelvic bowl, and the hips. Also these organs within the pelvic girdle, organs of elimination, reproduction, sexuality, the buttocks, Just acknowledging whatever is present into the center of the body.
And again, if any of you are feeling tired, feeling free to shift, open the eyes. <clears throat> and then letting our awareness now move up into the abdomen, of course, is the plumbing connection of the organs of elimination plumbed up into the large intestine, the colon, into the bladder. So we begin to sense and feel into the abdomen, into the digestive system, into our bellies, our guts, our stomach, whatever you'd like to call it. Sensing into the belly and acknowledging whatever you're feeling physically or if it gives rise to any thoughts and emotions and just letting be, allowing what's here in the belly. Now letting our awareness shift to the tailbone, its base of the spine, supporter. So sensing into the tailbone and then giving rise to the spine, the home, of course, of our central nervous system. Of course, connected up into the brain. But sensing into the tailbone and into the lower back. Acknowledging whatever sensations are present. Sensing into the lower back and gradually just letting awareness rise into the middle and gradually into the upper back and just acknowledging whatever sensations are present. Just giving them space. Just like a pond would give space to a rock that you would throw in it and it would set off ripples in all directions, just giving space to the rippling of whatever sensations are present, allowing what's here. Sensing into the back with awareness. <clears throat> and letting be. Just sensing into the lower, the middle, and the upper back. And 
And then letting awareness gradually come into the chest. And of course, within the center of this chest is our heart. Major organ of our circulation. And of course, next to the heart is our lungs, the systems of ventilation. The rib cage, the sternum, this protective shielding of these vital organs as we sense into the chest and acknowledge what's present. Of course, is the inside of the chest as described, and of course, the outside of the chest. Of course, the breasts, the sensing into the chest with awareness. And now letting awareness come up into the left shoulder and the armpit beneath. Sensing into the shoulder, the armpit, and beginning to direct awareness gradually down the left arm into the upper left arm and into the elbow. from the elbow into the forearm. And from the forearm into the wrist and into the left hand, into the fingers and thumb palm of the hand, top of the hand. So this sensing and feeling, scanning the body from the left shoulder, down the left arm, into the left hand, fingers and thumb <coughs> being present. And then letting awareness extend from the left hand and the fingers and thumb into the right hand, into its fingers and thumb, sensing into the right hand. Again, these fingers and thumb, the palm of the hand, the top of the hand, and up into the right wrist being present, sensing into the body, scanning being present.
And from the right hand, fingers and thumb coming up into the right wrist, and then gradually as well into the lower right arm, the forearm. front of it, the back, the sides, the inside, and its connection into the right elbow. Acknowledging whatever you're feeling present physically or mentally or emotionally and letting be. Just gradually extending from the lower right arm, the forearm and elbow, into the upper right arm, its connection into the right shoulder and the armpit beneath. Feeling into the front and the back, the sides, the inside, into the body, being present. Now letting awareness extend from the right shoulder and across into the left shoulder. And of course in between both of these shoulders is the neck and throat. As we begin to sense and feel into the shoulders, into the neck, into the throat, being present. And just allowing whatever's present in the shoulders, and the neck, and the throat. And then just gradually bringing awareness into the mouth. There's that open space within the mouth, and the teeth, and the tongue lips, of course the chin below, as well as into the jaw, just sensing. The jaw is one of the most exercised joints of the body, home of our communication, home of how we take in our food. So sensing into the mouth, into the jaw, to the teeth, to the tongue, the lips, being present. 
And from the mouth, feeling into the cheeks of the face, into the temples of the head, into the forehead, into the eyes and the muscles around the eyes, into the nose, into the sinus passages that go deep into the head. We begin to feel into the facial structure from the outside and feeling it from the inside, feeling into the face with awareness, place of expression, senses of sight, smell, taste, just around a corner of the sounds of the ears, of course is the top and the back of the head, and into the skull and into the brain, the center of our central nervous system. which extends throughout this body from head to toe to fingertips, sensing into the face and into the head with awareness. And as we feel and sense into the face and head, which again is the center of so many of our senses, of sight, of smell, of taste, of sound, of course the sensations, and the brain, the cognitive faculty. But all of these are indeed connected to what is below. And so let's just sense and feel into that connection of the face and the head that's directly connected to the neck and throat. And of course, the face and head connected to the neck and throat is connected to the shoulders and the arms and the hands. It's connected to the chest below and the back, the belly, the hips. That's connected to each of the legs and into the feet. As you begin to expand the field of awareness, from head to toes to fingertips, this unified organism of the body as it breathes in, feeling that sense of the unification. There's a sense of lifting or expansion on the inhalation and contraction, the falling on an exhalation, sensing the unification of this whole body organism from head to toe to fingertips as it breathes in and breathes out, being present.
alive, awake, the whole body organism as it breathes in and breathes out. Steve mentioned to you earlier, in MBSR we speak about that there's more right with you than wrong with you. You're here, you're breathing, you're alive. And I'll just end by um, just sharing a story that uh, speaks to our sense of, uh, of wholeness as a human being. As we felt that in the unification from head to toe to fingertip, this unified organism as it breathes in and breathes out. Some years ago, there was a story on NPR of a sculptor who's commissioned by a federal agency to build a large globe of the world. And it's coming along very beautifully. It was near completion. It was a beautiful, smooth sphere. And unfortunately, the sculptor had a catastrophic accident and became paralyzed from the waist down. This began a very difficult time. And of course, there was a lot of physical and occupational therapy since it was such a crisis of the body, but it was also a crisis of the spirit, the heart, the mind. And so got a lot of support in all these areas. And after about a year of all these therapies and deep work, the sculptor actually experienced a deep healing. The healing did not pertain to the body. The body remained paralyzed from the waist down. The healing pertained to the spirit, to the heart, to the mind. And the sculptor decided as an inspiration of healing to finish that globe and the use of some attendants, and they called in a crane operator because it was a very heavy, large uh, globe. And the globe was lifted up into the air as the sculptor supervised, and then asked the crane operator to release it, and it came tumbling down to the ground and smashed, dented, and so forth. Then the sculptor got out welding torches with the help of some assistants, and they re-welded the globe back together again. But instead of sanding the seams, they were left rigid and ragged, and they were included as part of the topography of the globe. And they finished it, and it looked really nice, but it was very different than than that marble-like sphere that it once was. The globe was put behind a curtain. The federal officials heard that it was finally to be completed. They were really excited. They hadn't seen the globe. They had seen it before, it's near completion, but hadn't seen the final product. And the sculptor just paused for a moment and said, I'm about to unveil the globe, but I want you to know I've made some changes. And if you don't like it, I can change it back to the way that it originally was. And they were just so happy that it was done, and one finally just blurted out, just show us, just show us. And so the curtain was unveiled, and there was this globe, very different than the marble-like sphere that it once was. And... The sculptor could see all of the federal officials' jaws kind of just dropped open. They were, looked stunned. Finally, one of them blurted out, well, what, what happened? And the sculptor said, I, I, you know, I warned you that I had made some changes. And 
This is actually um, a reflection of my own inner journey, as you know, of uh, my accident. And, um, and I, I, perhaps I, you'll understand more. I'll, I'll tell you the title of what I call this globe. And even if you uh, still want to change it back to that marble-like sphere that it once was, I'm happy to do so too. But one of the federal officials said, please tell us, what do you call this globe? And the sculptor said, I call this globe shattered but whole. Shattered but whole. A year ago, my life became completely shattered and I have discovered through this deep inner work healing and wholeness. And I know that when we all come to um, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, just like I asked you, how many hands were raised? Stress, anxiety, depression, pain, illness. And so I want to affirm as we come to a close of this meditation, as we feel into our bodies from head to toes to fingertips, that there is possibilities of deeper healing within us. That perhaps amidst the shatterings, we can indeed discover our wholeness, just as the whole body, a unified organism, breathes in and breathes out. Just as Michelangelo looked at the large block of marble and saw David standing inside it, all it needed to do was be chipped away. It was already there. Breathing in and breathing out, feeling the sense of the unification of the body, being present. As we come to an end of this meditation, taking a moment just to acknowledge this time that you've spent with yourself. Even if your mind wandered off every other moment, as St. Francis de Sales would say, your hour would still be well employed. You were giving it your best. May we hold ourselves with great compassion, with great kindness. We can say that this practice of mindfulness is also a practice of kindfulness, the sense of beginning to befriend that which was unwanted before or pushed away, to begin to befriend our own hearts. May all beings know peace. Gently beginning to wiggle fingers and toes and opening the eyes if they were closed and just feeling that sense of aliveness and presence being here in this moment, just as you are. And perhaps with just a reminder for all of us with our gadgets, if we can put them on airplane or shut them off, that would be helpful. And I know sometimes we just totally forget. I have to keep on reminding about my gadget in my pocket. Is it on airplane? So appreciate that. 
And um, what we'd like to suggest to do, and this is what we do in MBSR, is that we spend time with practice and then we discuss the practice, speaking from the heart of what was our experience in the practice. And we also seed in mindful communication because we are relational beings. So we're going to bring these two together in asking you in just a few moments to form groups of threes or fours, perhaps no more than four and not under three. And for each person to take a few moments to just share, introduce yourself and maybe just share for a bit like how was this practice of the body scan and, and how was this for you? Also, of course, we did some mindful yoga before that. You could include that as well. But speak to about how the practice was for you, any learnings, any observations, any challenges. And what I'd like to suggest at first is one person speak at a time, the other two or three people in that group. Your job is to just listen, not to give advice, not to say anything, just to listen empathically and you don't have to be like Mr. Spock in Star Trek and look emotionless. You're welcome to smile or to nod, but not to speak. It's such a courtesy to actually provide presence for another and to listen to them. It's a gift that we can give each other. This is the heart of mindfulness, bringing it to communication. The speaker gets a chance to speak and the listener gets a chance to listen and, and to speak from your heart. We don't have to get into a lot of head stuff if possible. And just what was your experience? So one at a time, you share a little bit about how this was for you. Any learnings, any observations, any challenges. Once everyone is done, find to move more into normal conversation. What I would like to suggest, though, in the normal conversation is that, that we try to abstain from giving any advice to anyone. Just to listen and to talk back and forth will be very, very helpful. I'll also say that sometimes for some of us, it can be very anxiety-provoking to be in groups and to have to speak. And if you're feeling that you would prefer not to speak, or maybe you, you don't have anxiety, you're just feeling kind of quiet, then you can certainly pass and just maybe just say your name and say, I'm going to pass for now. And if there's time a little bit afterwards, you can speak if you want or, or let it be. So there's no pressure here. Okay? Any questions about that? Okay. So we can do this about 15, 20 minutes. And then we're going to come back into uh, our large group and kind of harvest, if you will, some of these discussions. And then we'll eventually have lunch. So we're um, doing this. And if, if this feels like it's also a time that you need a break, what I would first suggest is to maybe let's form our groups now and we'll help you. Um, maybe you can just do it by um, geographic proximity, which might be the easiest. And then if you're unable to find a person, raise your hand high, look around the room, you'll find another person and go towards them, and that's going to become your group. So again, what I'd like to suggest is three or four. If there's five or more, it's going to take too long. If it's two, it, it, we want to have you get to meet people, to have a little bit of community. So why don't we begin, and 
if we can, let's try to do this with minimal talking until we all form in the groups. But again, raise your hand if you can't find anyone and we'll help you. Groups of threes and fours. And then once you form your group, I'd like to ask you to come into silence for, and await further instructions. Does anyone need a group? Raise your hand. So stand up and raise your hand. So find each other. Look to the right, look to the left, look around the circle. There's people. Either three or four. There's a person coming, join you right now, so there's three. So, okay, I'd like you all to please sit down now and come into the silence for a moment. <laughs> so coming into the silence, seating down for a moment. Well done. So I'd like to suggest, so again, we're going to be speaking about the body scan, the yoga, how this was for you, any observations, any learnings, challenges. And maybe we'll start with the person with the longest hair goes first, and then you go to the left after that. We have a tape measure if need be. So good luck, have fun. Let's come back to our larger group. Finish your conversations and come back to our larger group. So what we'd like to do is in a larger group now, talk a little bit about mindfulness and stress reduction. Basically, how to, how to work with things like pain as it comes up in your body. And so um, what did you notice and how did you work with it? Anybody that would like to talk? Pain or anxiety or depression or queasy gut, tight job, tight lips. 
or what you learned, what you know. What noticed. did you learn? And we'll maybe have the microphones passed around again. And we'll try to be mindful of going from one side to the other, and we'll just switch back and forth. I always have a lot of um, pressure on my chest. Did you say your name? Gina. And um, so I, when we were going through it, I could, when you said open up here and breathe through it, I could actually feel, I kind of lifted my neck up, which, because when I go inward, it gives it more, you know, it's more pressure and it hurts. And so when I did breathe in and open up my chest and my neck, it would flow. My breath felt, uh, flowed, of course, a lot easier and I didn't feel the pain. Did you notice what was going on in your mind with that tightness in your chest? I was trying to be present, unlike most times where I'm thinking about or worrying about everybody or everything else. That's fine. That sounds wonderful. Those are wonderful discoveries. So maybe on this side? It really... It's working. It's on. It's on? Yes. Oh, good. I really appreciated this um, this meditation and the space that was was spent with it. I discovered that I have one part of my body that is not in pain, and I never knew that before. <laughs> and uh, when I went to the other areas of the body um, where there was pain, I just it felt good to make space for it, to just make room for mm-hmm. it and to acknowledge it and and send some mercy to it <laughs> you know and the and the muscles around that hold and generate the pain to kind of try to open them up so mm. it, was, it was really good thank you and you know I'll just say that um, what you're describing is often something different than the tendency that a number of us have as far as often getting tight around the pain. And so that sense of just letting it ripple or giving it space is very important, as well as sometimes it may evoke different emotions and let us even acknowledge those feelings that are there. And I think also one thing that's very helpful for many of us is to begin to notice, too, if I begin to catastrophize how is the pain going to be later? That's a vicious cycle. And to come back into the moment. And I'm glad that um, yeah, yeah, I, the word I've been using is acknowledging, not accepting. And so I, I really want a distinguishment between the two because sometimes as we go through the body, there may be places that I'm not very accepting of because I hate it. Or I don't want it to be the way that it is. I'm scared. I'm angry. And so we're not saying, this is a very important distinction, what you're saying is that we're not saying that you have to accept what's there because it might be unacceptable, but can I actually begin to acknowledge that I'm feeling some unacceptable feelings here? And, and there's a very different distinction between acknowledging and accepting. And so we're not saying you have to try to be okay with it, but it maybe acknowledging how much I'm not okay with it. And just like the other distinction that we'll sometimes use is the big difference between letting be and letting go. If I knew how to let go, I would have done it years ago. Not so easy to let go. So whispering words of wisdom, letting it be. 
and bringing that sense of acknowledgement. Because one of the things we see is that when we invest our resistance to what's there, that resistance actually causes more suffering. And so how do we begin to learn how to go with it rather than putting our energy and fighting it? And that's what you were also describing, so I appreciate that, you know, and that pain wasn't, was still there, but somehow you were going to meet it in, a, in maybe another way. And also recognizing, wow, there's some other places in my body that, that there's no pain that I wasn't even aware of before. That's, that's important to know. So he you're said, not the pain. He said that he's not the pain. There's the pain and there's the awareness of it, but it's maybe the total identification has begun to lessen, or that definition. Thank you. Not easy what we're talking about. But is there a way that we can begin to meet and to work, not only with what's coming up physically, but also maybe we're, we're met with, with old traumas or old feelings or shame or guilt or anxiety, that we can begin to meet it in the same way of acknowledging what's present. Maybe on this side, microphone. And I hear your reports, what you're learning, observations, challenges. What are you discovering? Skepticism. <laughs> Welcome it all. I would just like to make a comment, actually, and prefer not to share my experience with the entire classroom, but I wanted to say that I thought was really helpful because I've done body scans before, you know, many times in yoga. Uh, without the same experience, and I thought that the amount of time dedicated to the scan is incredibly helpful. I was saying to the group, I've never spent so much time thinking about my left toe, you know, and it was really helpful. So thank you. And you used an important word in bringing that up. It's like it's easy to operate from our most prominent activity, which is cognitive thinking all the time. And even during a body scan, we find that thoughts can be quiet about everything, and that there's a, another human faculty we're all born with called awareness that doesn't use any thought. Awareness doesn't think. It also has no preferences and no judgments. It's not good or bad. It's not trying to get somewhere or away from somewhere. Awareness will then witness this pain and start exploring the body and where that I'm no longer identifying with it. And in that place of investigating, we can do like you did earlier when you talked about, oh, I noticed there's another way to work with this, and something releases. But thinking often gets in the way. It hardly ever wants to shut up inside of our heads. And mm. Anybody else over here? Or on this side. Okay. We'll switch back and forth. If your heart's beating a little bit faster, that might be like, you might want to raise your hand for the mic. <laughs> it's called quaking. Here we go, right here. <laughs> That's what the Quakers do. Sit in silence and something starts quaking and the voice comes out. So I shared this experience with my group, but um, I had experience where I, when I was in the body scan, I actually became fearful of getting to certain body parts because when we were all doing the yoga, um, so I have asthma and I ended up with a huge asthma attack and I could mm. I had to sit because mm -hmm. I was hitting my inhaler and it wasn't working and I was mm. like, this is gonna end and it did end and when we got to the body scan, 
because everything had calmed down, I was afraid when I got to the chest mouth part, thinking that was going to re-trigger. And, um, and it didn't. But I felt like this lack of trust in parts of my body. Yeah. And then when it was OK, I was like, oh, I guess I can trust these parts yeah. again. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Thank you. And um, yeah, I appreciate your wisdom in knowing it's time to sit and to stabilize what you need to do to care for yourself. And, and part of our practice is in, in knowing that there's trust and also that there was a knowing that there was not trust. And, and, and let me oh, let me just, can I even be with that? Which is also a scary thing to do, but like here, there's fear arising. So can I actually, within the context of practice, okay, here's fear. Let me acknowledge you too. Yeah. Yeah. Also, as I, as I talked earlier about anxiety, has always got this component of anticipation. And uh, that can be then a, a, a very useful investigation. Above all, it's an investigative practice with kindness. And hmm, I, I wonder what the relation is between this constriction and this anticipation of what's going to happen. And, and to start playing with that some. And what do we do then as we find, wow, this uh, anxiety is related to this, this, um, this particular symptom. Well, um, this practice is when we're, we're talking about being present in the body. It's just that being, coming back to the present moment. Now, I'm curious to this. I feel the constriction. The restless. How do I work with this in a different way rather than rushing for the inhaler? Sometimes things may open and relieve as I go, oh, look at this. My mind has something to do with this. And th- those, are, those are moments that can be, Bob was talking about, liberating, uh, open to a greater freedom. I have more freedom here, more choice than I really knew be real valuable. And I'll just say, and thank goodness for the inhaler and knowing when to use it wisely. <laughs> and it's not about a replacement, but you know, how do, and how, do, how do we do when we get activated to stabilize? And it may be that meditation is not the right thing at that moment. Maybe it is getting up, going for a walk. Like, you know, when there's like, there's like the comfort zone, there's the learning zone, there's the danger zone. We don't learn much in the danger zone. And so the sense of stabilization is also very important. And so the sense of stabilizing, to sit, to take care of ourselves. So even in anything we're doing here today, this feeling like this activation, maybe there's time to recognize, maybe that's to be acknowledged wisely. Maybe that means to get up and go for a walk. So listen to what serves you to support you. And I would say, I think because I've been doing this practice for a while now, it allowed me to do that when I was having that attack. Because initially, my impulse was to try to keep going with the yoga. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, that's, that's not caring for myself. I yeah. need to just sit and be OK, and then also be OK that I'm going to miss this segment, mm-hmm. right? Because then there's that feeling of loss, because mm-hmm. I missed out on it. But, Feeling sitting and feeling okay with that, and it's only because I've been doing this for a while that I could get to there. Mm-hmm. That's the element of kindness and love, and self-compassion. Very nice. So on this side, there's a hand in the back. <coughs> Thanks for having 
That is, uh, uh, lately I tried to uh, increase my um, exercise level, and then uh, I realized uh, because of my physical problem, and I have, I'm a person with a lot of sinus issue, and then uh, um, my back problem, and I somehow something about my body is just causing a lot of uh, breathing problem. I don't know whether I have asthma problem or just breathing problem. So I was just having a question that is uh, meditation really helps in such breathing problem or I don't know if you saw the answer, but I, I don't really quite hear it. So that, that's my question. You know, my sense is um, good to see a doctor, get evaluated, and meditation can be helpful. And it may not be that it's going to um, solve the breathing problem, but it may help to work with the relationship that one has in living with a physical challenge. To um, be able to live with what's here in a, a more meaningful way. Of course, sometimes when we get into a breathing crisis, the reaction is to breathe more rapidly, more irregularly, and so by counteracting that, by bringing the breath into the belly, we call this diaphragmatic breathing, that type of breathing can help regulate what was once deregulated. But of course, in what's, you know, you're talking about a potential health thing, it's always first and foremost to see your doctor to find out about what's going on here and potentially using meditation practice as a way to help work with our sense of our relationship to what's there. Maybe it is, and even to, you know, maybe to also to rule out that there's something physical, and if it's something more emotional, and you know, then maybe that's to be looked at through meditation, also with a therapist. And sometimes therapists can be very helpful in, in working with that on, on, on a 101. So I want to say that meditation and mindfulness is not a do-all, end-all for all people at all times, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. And, and how do we be wise with, with the practice, but also with what is supportive to our health and to our well-being. And maybe I could add on to that a little bit, that there's, a, there's value in this investigation of mindfulness. What is, what's going on here with my breath? I've been working with this for many years with uh, not only asthma, but it's an allergic problem that is related to a lot of different things, as it turns out working with the doctor and my mindfulness. And so the, the, it's lovely to find a physician that actually is in, into, involved with this kind of partnership and is open to hear the things you have to say. I, I, I noticed this and I noticed that. And could that possibly be related? And, and they'll say things like, well, I've, I've never heard of such a connection before. But very often, we end up going to the doctor as well with discoveries that weren't in the allergy tests, that weren't in the various concepts, and say, I've made this discovery, and do a few other tests, and sure enough, I am allergic to cats. <laughs> and the allergy test three times in my back said I wasn't. But I'm sure it's that damn cat. <laughs> And so that there's, a, there's a relationship we cultivate that this, with working with my physician, too. Not the end all, but how do we do this together with our medical provider? We have a few more minutes. On this side, there's a hand back here, please. 
deep thanks to the microphone bearers. Thank you so much. Well, I wanted to thank you. I really enjoyed the uh, body scan meditation. I haven't done it that way before. But the question I have for you is um, I missed when you were saying. You Can you put the microphone a little bit higher? Thank you were talking about letting go versus something else. And I think you said, if I knew how to let go, I would have done that a long time ago. And uh, what was uh, that compared to our? Yeah, it was um, to let be. Oh, the to difference let be. between letting be and letting go. So letting yeah. be is this quality of giving space to what's here. Where letting go is kind of like, I mean, it'd be wonderful if we can let go, but it's not so easy in our lives. And I sometimes will tell myself, I need to let go, I need to let go. But actually what's deep down is I'm holding on as tight as anything and I'm angry and I'm sad. And so my practice would say, inform me, let me just feel the tightness, let me feel the sadness, let me feel the anger, let me acknowledge what's present. And in time, it's a very different way of being with what's there. And things begin to dissipate, just like the sky made of air offers no resistance to the storm and the virtue of the sky is it gives space to the storm and the storm gradually begins to dissipate and mindfulness is this practice of giving space at times to what's present. It doesn't mean sometimes also not to be, it doesn't mean to be complacent or disassociative of not take action, sometimes that's the wise thing. Take action, you see your kid going out in the street, you get them out of the way. Let's just give it space. Let's see what happens. No, it's not wise. But, but so there's qualities of bringing space, of letting be, let go. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's very good. That's what I wanted. Let it be. I know it's... Just think of the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, you hear people say a lot, just let go. But it's not that easy. <laughs> not that easy. Yeah, the Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystics, used to say, life is marked by the letting goes into the letting goes and the letting goes and the letting goes. And it's a powerful teaching, but not so easy. But ultimately, we have to let go of everything. And how do we work with our practice to begin to go with what's here? Maybe open into love. A friend of mine once said, what would you rather do? Would you rather die with peace in your heart or fear? I knew the answer. This side? There's a hand here. I practiced body scans for years. I learned to do it when I was a small child. My grandmother taught me. Mm -hmm. And I've practiced it since then. But I haven't had someone else walk me through it in quite a while. And I recognized this time what a gift it was to relax into the structure of having you leading us through it and having a group of people who are sitting here doing it along with me. It allowed me to settle, not to, to not have to carry the structure for myself, but to settle into the observation in the moment. And I'm noticing the difference between practicing with a teacher and a group as opposed to practicing by myself, which is what I usually do. Uh, so I appreciate that very much. And what it allowed me to do was, to, I've been dealing with some severe pain issues the last few months, and this allowed me to really focus 
on each area of my body and discover those areas that are not in pain where there is mm-hmm. actually greater openness this year than there was last year mm. um, as opposed to other areas where there's where there is more pain this year than last year but to notice the changes and I appreciate the mm. support that the structure <clears throat> that you provide and that the other participants provide that mm. created uh, recreated the practice for me this time and I appreciate that thank you mm. well, you're speaking to some very important things I think everybody can relate to and that Come in, and, and I think the gentleman back here spoke to the same thing. When you have a pain, it's so easy for the body just to constant mind to concentrate right there. And what's wrong? And what does this mean? As Bob said earlier, is this going to be there forever? Is it going to ruin my life? Will I ever be able to do this or that again? And we contract around it. And uh, within it, there's also all the thought processes and all, all the emotions that go along with it. And to be able to uh, surrender rather than have to bear all the responsibility for following through the entire body or something, to to actually spend more time in that area with curiosity and loving kindness and self-compassion, things can open that otherwise would not. And there's that piece about non-striving again, acknowledging and allowing rather than working to accept or fix. So what is this? And within those spaces, we can make discoveries that otherwise could not be found by any MRI or, you know, blood test or whatever that only you can do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at this point uh, we're getting towards lunch. I see Marcus here. He wants to make... Welcome to come up and make an announcement. We can pass the mics forward, and and, um, and after he talks, we'll just give you a little bit of instructions, and we'll meet back. All right, just going to make a couple of quick announcements before lunch. Uh, in the foyer, you'll find our uh, news and schedule events for winter. It goes through April. It includes both the day-long classes as well as the residential retreats. If you want to pick one of those up, um, Jim Farwell, we overcharged you five dollars, so I have five dollars for you. <laughs> so I'll just give it to you now. <laughs> it's like a lucky well, day, huh? Right on the spot. <laughs> um, <You> won. <laughs> and so, and then sometimes uh, a few I notice that uh, there's some new people here, but some other uh, people have been here before. At the end of the day, a lot of times people help out by putting their chairs away, but today we'll leave the chairs up because we have a class here tomorrow that will be about a similar size. So we'll leave the chairs up today. And then I noticed that we're quite a, f- a few hands up that said they're new to Spirit Rock. So if you're new to Spirit Rock, you noticed a couple of baskets on the way in uh, that read Donna, D-A-N-A. And Donna is a Pali word that means generosity. The Buddha saw generosity as one of the central pillars of a spiritual life. Uh, He felt that the simple act of giving helps us develop our ability to let go, uh, to not grasp at material things. And with this, the Buddha felt that we begin to kind of acknowledge our interconnectedness and how we all share. Uh, And he developed the Dana system to build a community of open-handedness where those who share their teachings are... Uh, uh, dependent on the generosity of those who receive them. And this is a uh, system that Spirit Rock uses today. 
So the class fee you paid on the way in basically helps us cover our maintenance of our buildings, all of our grounds, our administrative staff, uh, but does not pay the teachers. Uh, Bob and Steve are not being paid by Spirit Rock today. Instead, they rely on the generosity of our participants uh, to continue their teachings. So uh, I'd like to thank you in advance for your generosity today. The two baskets will be in the foyer all day and, and after the class. It'll label Donna. Uh, you can do cash, check. We also, there's a, a slip in there in case you wanted to use a card, a credit card. You can pay by that. And I think that's it for our announcements. So uh, thank you in advance for your generosity. And I'll hand it back to you if you want to make a few more announcements. So bon appétit. And um, we'll be eating. And, and what I'd like to invite is, um, you know, there's beautiful places to eat, eat outside and around. And uh, I invite you to just even for one biteful, being aware of chewing and tasting and swallowing. So the mindfulness of eating and perhaps even reflecting before you put the food in your mouth that this food directly feeds the body so that the head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, and so forth can continue to grow, to be alive, to be grateful for this food, and even perhaps being mindful and cognizant of what is it that I'm taking in? Is it processed, or is it closest to its original source? Is it animal? Is it vegetable? So there's some sense of just knowing what it is that we're going to be eating. So we can bring our mindfulness to, to food and to eating, and... Welcome to enjoy walking around this very beautiful area, or maybe you want to lie on the grass if it's not too wet, and you can eat in here as well, I'm just being told, which is nice, so as you like, and we will start at 1.30, so please come back at maybe 25 after so, so we can begin on time. Thank you Have so much. Have a nice lunch. What time did you say? 1.30. It'll be, um, One hour. And I'll ring a bell outside, too. Oh, and, there will be a bell that will be rung to call you back in as well. So welcome back, everyone. And maybe we'll just sit for a couple of minutes to reorient ourselves from um, eating and Connecting with each other, very nice to see all the engagement with each other in this community of mindfulness. So just a few moments again, a little bit of a weather report, just sensing into the body, this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions that lies our world. And acknowledging what's present physically, mentally, and emotionally, and letting be.
So I think I'd um, like to speak a little bit about uh, mindfulness and its role in stress reduction because, you know, when we look at this long-winded words, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, we may want to ask ourselves, uh, how does mindfulness relate to stress reduction? And I think this morning, of course, we've been giving you, offering you some definitions of mindfulness, which is this practice of being present. But how does the quality of mindfulness, of being present, relate to stress reduction? And that's a very important uh, thing to talk about. Steve mentioned earlier today uh, this beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl. And he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom to choose. And at times we don't recognize the spaces between our reactions born out of so much impulsive reactivity. And it's quite a novel thing to consider that there's actually a possibility of a space between our reactions. But if you look at life, it's made up of one moment at a time and then spun together It's called a life. But life indeed is made up of one moment at a time. And often, of course, we are missing these moments. A friend of mine, a psychologist, when she began practicing mindfulness, she (laughs) observed and said to me, you know, I'm really noticing with the workings of my mind it's doing two different functions. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, it's either rehearsing or it's rehashing. And I, I love that. I love that. How much energy is put into rehearsing and rehashing? If we could actually bottle that, we would not have an energy crisis. And so sometimes it's difficult to see the spaces between our reactions, but when we consider life is made up of one moment at a time, one frame at a time, like a movie, it's made up of one frame at a time, spun together, gives it that sense of the fluidity, but one frame at a time. So as we begin to train ourselves to become more present we can begin to recognize that there may be choices, that I can begin to respond to a situation much more constructively, as I'm aware now, than reacting in a way that is uh, not constructive and sometimes potentially destructive. So this is a very uh, amazing possibility that we can learn to respond in ways that uh, support more well-being and health rather than reacting in ways that can potentially lead even to physiological breakdown. Potentially, if we are developing maladaptive coping styles, I deal with my stress through smoking or drinking or different types of behaviors that can lead to physiological breakdown, to illness, if we can begin to respond in more constructive ways, this could be potentially very helpful. And a lot of this lies in the mind-body connection. And the neuroscientists are very interested in how these thoughts and emotions affect our bodies. This is where mindfulness also plays such an important role because if we become aware of what's happening, we can begin to to prevent perhaps a cascade of reactivity. So actually, I'm going to do a little thing on the board. This is about as close as I'm going to get to a PowerPoint.
So um, first going to just do, uh, I'm going to call out to the room, when we are having an unpleasant event, a stressful event, what type of typical thoughts do you, you might say to yourself of, of when there's something unpleasant happening? So I'd love for you just to call out. Not again. Not again. <laughs> yes, go ahead, good. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, shit. <laughs> How do you spell that? Okay. Uh, um, why me, why me? Why me. Oh, a couple of why me's. What I do wrong. Shoulds. You'll reread these back to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> I don't know if I could. Anyone else? What other type of thoughts? All my fault. And then conversely, all his. All his. Not even, not even your. His. All his fault. What's that? Am I, ever going to learn? Am I ever going to learn? I'm bad, baby. I'm bad. Okay, you get the drift. So when you have these type of thoughts of not again, oh no, oh shit, why me? Uh, I can't read my writing. Shoulds, shoulds, it's my fault, it's his fault. Um, what type of emotions do you feel when you have those type of thoughts? Fear. Shame. Guilt, anxiety, embarrassment, anger, frustration, hopeless. Oh, you guys are good. What's that? Oppressed, despair, isolated. I missed that one. Oh, she, okay, so the good. We're, get, we're getting the points down here. Okay, great. You guys are great. So then the question is, so when you have these types of thoughts and emotions, <laughs> so, so when you have these, where does it affect in your body. So when you have like, oh no, and there's anger, oh shit, there's anxiety, it's all my fault, hopeless. When you have all these types of thoughts and emotions, where does it affect you in your body? So I see the throat, solar plexus, gut, chest, shoulders, head, jaws, eyes. Where else? Hips, feet, Hands. <laughs> Tight butt. Okay. Sweating. Cold. So anyways, this guy's got a lot going on. And it's powerful for us to really reflect upon how powerful these thoughts and emotions are and how they affect our bodies. And there's way more that we can put on all of these sheets. And so this mind-body connection is very important. 
Our thoughts and emotions are connected to our body through various neural pathways. And why mindfulness potentially is so important is because um, it can help us to potentially begin to get out of this cycle. But here's, a, here's actually a very simple diagram. This actually comes from Gary Schwartz, who's a stress psychologist. He calls this a health systems feedback loop, <laughs> quite a name. And this is actually a very simplified version of what he describes. I don't want to give him the due credit. And essentially, what the, this is um, a, a diagram that is based on unawareness or unmindfulness. You're not mindful. So when you're unaware, it comes to disconnection. And when you're disconnected, it comes to being out of balance. So an example, I'm driving along on the highway, and all of a sudden there's a big traffic jam. I'm going to be late. And I'm unaware of, I mean, I'm aware that there's traffic and I'm going to be late, but I'm unaware of my internal reaction to it. And I begin to hold the steering wheel very tightly that my knuckles are turning white. That's causing muscle skeletal tension throughout my body. I'm beginning to breathe more rapidly, more irregularly. It's forcing my heart rate, blood pressure, temperature of the body to elevate. I'm in a stress reaction. So when we're unaware, we're disconnected from our experience. And because of that, we begin to spin out of balance. Now, if I had a chalkboard, it would be an even nicer little thing here. But when you become aware, you immediately become connected. It's like if the light's out here and we can't see anything, it would be difficult to find the doors to get out of here. But as soon as the light comes on, contact, I can see. The same way when there's awareness, there's connection. I'm back again. I'm here. Maybe the first thing I notice is I'm holding my hand so tightly my knuckles are turning white. I didn't even know that the moment prior because I was so busy engaged and lost in my reactivity. And it's not as if someone is sitting next to you in the passenger seat pointing a gun at you telling you to do this. We do this to ourselves and born out of these patterns of reactivity. And so once we become aware, we become connected. I begin to loosen the grip on the steering wheel. I begin to do some mindful breathing that begins to bring the irregulator, irregulated and rapid breath back into sense of regulation. And so conversely, we can say as a simple equation, awareness or mindfulness brings connection and connection brings balance. So it's a very simple equation. That this is the importance of waking up the sleeper. When we become aware, we have choice. We can begin to respond in a more constructive way. There's actually a, <clears throat> a teaching poem that speaks to this called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Patricia Nelson. And she says in Chapter 1, I'm walking down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm helpless. It takes a long time, but I finally do get out. In chapter two, I walk down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again, and I see where I am. It's my fault. I get out quickly this time. Chapter three, I walk down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. It's a habit. You know, this is kind of what I do. Many of us can live in chapter three 
for a very long time. But if we become mindful and see that we have choices, in chapter 4, I'm walking down that same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I walk around the hole. In chapter 5, I walk down another street. There's potentials for doing things different once we become aware. But it is it's the question of becoming aware, it's challenging because so much of the time, as John Lennon would say, life is what happens while I'm busy making other plans, is that I'm somewhere else. I'm not here. And I begin to fall into these patterns. There's an old story of a person who had a knee surgery and had to get a lot of physical therapy. Came in, of course, to the therapist limping. After many weeks of working together, the person was walking very fine. One time they broke uh, they finished their appointment right before lunch. The patient left. The physical therapist went out just two minutes after this person because they wanted to go get a sandwich down the street and happened to look across the street, and there was the patient with somebody walking like this again. So the next time the patient came in, the physical therapist was dumbfounded. I mean, he, this person's been improving for weeks and walking like the first time they met. And I asked, what's going on? And the patient said, well, I was walking with one of my family members, and nobody would recognize me any other way. That's just sometimes how the way things are. And we know sometimes about dysfunctional situations, even though it's dysfunctional, perhaps it's comfortable or it's safe. So we can find ourselves getting into grooves and not seeing any other way. So this leads me to my last artistic rendering. And these are not mice. I, I didn't do a good job with them. Sometimes I'm better. Oh, yeah, much better. Now, these are supposed to be cows. <laughs> so anyways, I, I didn't do a very good job. But anyways, these are cows, and it's tradi traditional that cows, they like to drink water, you know? And back in when farmer Jane and Joe had their property 150 years ago, they had to take their path and go like this to get to the water. Because there was a forest here, there was boulders, more forests here. So they began and offsprings, everyone kind of followed the path. This is called the cow path. And as time went on, Farmer Jane and Joe's children, they actually took down the forest, they kind of smoothed out the land, they got rid of the boulders and this, and this was all just really flat. You could actually do a beeline straight to the water now, but the cows, nope, they'll just continue to follow the cow path because that's sometimes just the way things are. And um, so I want to say that where, where, the, where do the cow paths show up in our lives, in our own reactivity, in our own way of seeing things? And lastly is another metaphor, but evidently uh, true, uh, is that also farmers with horses and cows, in the, put them in pastures, they are very big animals, and they can knock down fences. And so the farmers being, um, wanting to keep the animals inside will electrify the fences. And they'll start getting jolted a bit, and they'll back off. And after getting jolted a number of times, they don't go near it anymore. And then the farmer, observing this very closely, shuts off the power, save money. The only thing that's keeping them in there is their mind. And I don't mean to pick on these poor animals because in some ways they might even be smarter than we are. But we, at the same time, and I'm actually a card-carrying vegan, so I'll just name that right now. But um, 
you know, our mind can limit us and we see things only in certain ways and we don't see any other way. We sometimes do this last uh, little play of perception in MBSR called the nine dot exercise. And the idea is to draw nine straight dots, I mean four straight dots, four straight lines, pardon me, through these nine dots. And if you stay inside the box, it can never be solved. The only way to solve this problem is to go outside of the box. It's one, that's two, that's three, and that's four. And so we're actually inviting us to be open to seeing from another perspective. And in some ways, I want to challenge you all, even haunt you all for the rest of your life, like to being open to seeing from another perspective. And sometimes we get so stuck in seeing things that's like this or like that, that we think this is the only way to see things. Now, of course, I could ask you all to stand up and move to a different room, I, or a different place in the room. I could actually start talking over there, and everything would get mixed up, and all of a sudden, we would recognize there's a hundred different ways of seeing this room. Yet sometimes we think, this is the only way. I got my stuff here, and this is where it is, and this is the only thing that's there. But there's actually a hundred or more ways of seeing this room if we began switching chairs. So I want to instill in you this possibility of perception. We instill this in MBSR, beginning in the second class with this nine-dot exercise, but it's like, how do we see things? And to challenge ourselves, there may be other ways of seeing. So I'll move this back and pause. Getting the idea? <laughs> Complete with cartoons and diagrams, particularly this piece about uh, being in traffic and how you clinch and everything. And one of, one of our teachers in this last five-day retreat, Anuska, said she was stuck in traffic last year, and uh, there was a billboard right there in the middle of the stuckness, and, and it said, sick of the traffic? Guess what? You are the traffic. <laughs> so it's another way of looking at it. I'm, I'm the problem. I'm the problem here. And so what we're talking about with that wonderful word from Gary Swartz, um, Shana Shapiro was one of his students. And she took it to great lengths as a, as a, as a mindfulness researcher and a neuroscientist. And looking at a model of health that's based upon connectivity. This connectivity is essential for good health. Making these connections that uh, Bob's talking about. The um, neuroscience around this is really a fascinating business. And, um, and the research in general on mindfulness is a fascinating business. Right now, we're getting up to 40 researched studies published a month on mindfulness studies in medical journals. And they're being funded to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year by the 
National Institute of Health and many other agencies. A lot of it is uh, invested in trying to <coughs> investigate what's going on in a human body and as uh, we're starting to make these connections, as awareness comes in. And I see that my way of looking at things really is influencing things, the things I want, the things I don't want, the story I've got going on about my life and how I'm stuck and where it's going. And I mean, just being on the stinking freeway stuck again is a great place for these stories to go. And how did I get into this? And I hate this job. And what, why didn't I go into, you know, into forest management? And, I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in the story. Well, it turns out these particular stories we tell ourselves are the things that create most of our suffering. Most of our suffering. I talked earlier about 10% what's happening, 90% my way of looking at things is really what stress is. And at the end of an MBSR class, what you hear from people is, well, it's more like 1% what's happening and 99% my way of looking at it, my way of thinking about it, my way of struggling against it. The narrative I got going on, turns out some of some really interesting studies coming out of uh, Toronto some years ago, Norm Farb, doing some neuroscience study in the human brain, uh, various fantastic gadgets they have now to do that, from functional MRIs and CAT scans and and the like, he's looking to find out where's the self in the human brain. And in doing this investigation, he came upon two selves. And he called these, one of them, the narrative-based self-referencing network. That is uh, me and my story network. The thoughts, the memories, the things that I shouldn't have done, I wish I'd have done, I'll never be able to do the guilts, the shame, and doubts that come from that. That's my narrative. So that's a narrative-based self-referencing network. He called this the default network of the human brain. This is where most human brains live their entire life, is going on the story of me. And um, my story, my story, we get so attached to our little stories, and they're precious to us. And uh, Nevertheless, they create so much trouble. They create so much trouble, regret and shame and doubt. So that was one self-referencing network. And he found another self-referencing network, and he called it the immediacy-based self-referencing network. And that's the here and now self. It doesn't grow all by itself. It only grows, only becomes developed by our investment in being here and now, which is a place most of us are not at most of the time. Very rarely are we just here now, just present, aware. We're doing something, trying to get somewhere, trying to get away from somewhere, finish something, accomplish something. Most of the time we're not here. As a matter of fact, a, a recent Harvard study uh, demonstrates that 45% of the time we're distracted with something entirely, even while we're focused on a very important job at work. And, and so this distraction, this being caught in the story and the judgments and the doubts and the fears, this is a very interesting thing as it changes the brain. 
And we can see the different levels in the brain that get developed in time for the narrative-based self-referencing network. The amygdala tends to grow and pulse. and The brain changes in response to how we use it. The, the mind changes the brain to give expression to itself. The mind changes the brain <clears throat> by get, by, and to give expression to itself. And gradually, oh, there was this wonderful thing coming out of a, who was it? I think it was J.P. Barnum that said, by, by the time a man is 50, he's got the face he deserves. By the time a man is 50, we got the smile lines, we got the frown lines, we got the anger lines, we got the hate lines. The lips, wrinkles. That's why I grew a beard. <laughs> and it's like, and here's that not only are we changing our faces by what we're doing with our emotional states, we're changing our brains. It's called amazing stuff of neuroplasticity. And that means uh, that's what it means that I'm actually changing my brain by how I use it. Uh, it is a. Um, it's an extraordinary business as they really are studying these things. Now, it should be said that when you talk to these famous neuro researchers, uh, Richie Davidson, Sean Shapiro, even Philip Goldine here at Stanford, many of the others, there's quite a lot right now they are involved with the neuroscience, uh, Richie Davidson, uh, mindfulness. They're not going to be making a lot of the broad claims you read in some articles and magazines. They're very cautious. They're saying it appears and it seems because there's an enormous amount of the ways that this, uh, these, mental, these changes in the brain, what they mean are really not all that clear to us yet. Well, there's um, underlying neural connections and influences we can't even begin to understand. So the science is in its infancy. But we're able to see some of these things. <clears throat> There's um, numerous studies that are demonstrating not only these two networks coming out of the brain, narrative-based self-referencing, present, immediacy-based self-referencing, but there's also showing that these are mostly related to an area right behind the prefrontal uh, lobe, our left prefrontal lobe, and a wonderful place Call the medium, the, what is it called? I wrote it down just so I could remember it. <laughs> then I can't find where I wrote it down. <laughs> I can't read my writing. We <laughs> <laughs> would forget it too. So I might have tried to find it. And it's a little, a little, it's a little area right behind. A little, thingy. a little thingy there. It's right behind the left prefrontal cortex. <clears throat> it is the one responsible for our emotional self-regulation. It is responsible for our ability to gain resilience again. This, is the, this becomes highly activated as we grow in our practice of mindfulness meditation and will change dramatically in just eight weeks of being involved in a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And, <clears throat> and studying this area, they're real fascinated by it because it, it also is an area known for uh, becoming more developed. This is the uh, 
neural development. It's a cingulate cortex. I left it sitting on the desk. <laughs> my hero. <laughs> my brains. <clears throat> cingulate cortex. Don't ever forget that. It's a <clears throat> it doesn't matter. What does matter is that you actually exercise the puppy. And you exercise the puppy by coming back to the present moment every time you go away from the present moment. And this is not so easily done. What we're seeing, too, is that this area becomes more enhanced with all this neural circuitry. <clears throat> we're talking this neuroplasticity. This is neurogenesis. <clears throat> There's more connections made and more electricity flowing in these areas. And one, one of the subjects they, they studied here is Matthew Richard, who had been involved in doing almost constant meditation for some 25, 30 years on loving kindness. And studying his brain, they found it to be dramatically different than every other human brain. This area of the brain, one researcher was saying, is if you're flying into Nevada and you're trying to get to Las Vegas and you're flying over these little towns and got a little light here and there. That's what most of these areas look like for most of us. But Matthew Richards said it was like Las Vegas. It was so dramatically different than everybody else's. And so at the front page of Time magazine some years ago, they, they proclaimed him the happiest man in the world. <laughs> but the brain changes in response to how we use it. And not only does this area become more developed and filled with all this neurocircuitry, but we're seeing all kinds of neurochemicals happening there. And they form this circuitry that's going here, starts sending these fibers going down between the two hemispheres of the brain into a big column, and they go connect to the amygdala, which is a hub of fear in our body, also hooked in the limbic system with the fight and flight sympathetic nervous system. And, and through these fibers, the, this uh, cingulate, cingulate cortex is starting to pump gamuglobulin, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And one researcher said, this is calming the amygdala with gamma goo. <laughs> calming the amygdala. And in time, we'll see over continued mindfulness practice, the amygdala begin to shrink and not be so active in human beings. That we're seeing changes in the brain that are rec recognized for perception, for critical um, thinking, for our emotional self-regulation. There's all this stuff with pain tolerance and recovery from trauma they're looking at. And they're seeing these brain changes, but like I say, it's very hard to nail down the science with this because we know so very little about this incredibly complex brain. And, and so the, the scientists themselves would be the first to be really softening some of these claims. But these things that I'm saying today are pretty clear, and we're looking at them going, well, how on earth does this work? This is based upon connectivity. This is between my awareness, my thoughts, my emotions, my body, my juices, my neurotransmitters, 
my brain itself changing. How to, how to be nice to have a brain that is more wired for happiness, for peace, for being at ease than one that's always going around a little circle, you know, like one of those trains that's going. We got at Christmas time when we were little, nobody gets them anymore. So a little bit about the brain science. Now, if you want to learn a little bit more, like I said, there's a, some up to 40 published research studies a month. Go, go to mindfulnessexperience.org online, and they're all being listed on a, on a monthly basis and brought up to date. And you can take a look at all these amazing scientific studies. So we, we have a, we're moving on with the schedule. What's that? Mindfulnessexperience.org. Now you can go. You can go there too from American Research Monthly, and that's mostly going to be cataloging just the research done in the United States. Meanwhile, it's happening all over the world. Well, right in Canada and over in Europe and many places in England. So a little bit on the science. Interesting stuff, huh? Try to see if you can figure out when you're in the immediacy-based self-referencing network now, because we're going to be shifting to do a practice. We're going to go into that network and see if you can tell where you're at in your brain while you're... No, forget that. It's a singular whatever. It's a singular cortex, insulate, moderate. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> so we're going to do a sitting meditation practice. So you can put away all your papers, find yourself a place where you can sit, where there's a certain amount of support for your legs, they're self-supporting. <clears throat> And a certain amount of dignity in your posture. You're not leaning back too far. You're just going to fall asleep. I'm sure many of us heard the snores during the body scan. That's a regular thing. But there's, we want to do things that will help us stay wakeful. Mindfulness is about waking up and being present here and now and awareness. So a posture that has a certain amount of alignment with the head and the neck and body. And dignity in the way you're sitting, not too tight and not too loose, like a guitar string that's just right. So paying a little attention at first to how you're sitting, and finding something to do with your hands where they can be at ease. And then, if you will, let's bring our attention to one of the most prominent things we can feel that is an expression of life itself happening in our body, and that's our breath. So turn to your breath wherever you find it, your nostrils or mouth or belly, and see if you can settle into that place while you're breathing normally, naturally. Naturally. 
seeing if you might feel the sensations of the breath coming in and breath going out, literally being in touch with the in-breath and out-breath as you breathe in normally and naturally, allowing the breath to breathe you. And using this sensation, ever-changing sensation of the breath coming and going as your way to be present. And you'll notice, of course, your thinking mind grows tired of this very quickly and has many other ideas of things more interesting to do. That's okay. That's just what our minds do. But as soon as you notice that with a huge amount of self-compassion and kindness, simply redirect your attention back to the breath wherever it is, the in-breath or out-breath. And once again, you're present. The very moment you notice you're actually lost in thought, you're present again. This mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body as you breathe. Considering meditation as an act of love, of deep, warm friendship with yourself. Of an end to the subtle violence of self-improvement. An end to the ceaseless searching and seeking pursuing that turns our lives into a knot. Just presence, the sensations of the breath with love. primary foundation of mindfulness practice is mindfulness of the body. This is one way to experience body and just being with the sensations of the breath. It's a way in which you can return to the body and 
the here and now. Anytime you get lost in traffic at work, in a regular merry-go-round of thought again, the breath is a place of recovery. When you're lost in that rumination and you're trying to sleep, just bring your attention to the breath in your belly. Feeling the breath, your brain can only do one thing at once, being in touch with sensations rather than engaged in thinking. This is the here and now self. Now let's shift to a different object and turn our awareness to listening. Noticing that just like breaths are coming or going, so are sounds coming and going. And you may use these different sounds as a way to be present. Aware in this practice as well that sounds also have a tendency to call interpretations of what the sound is, and judgments and preferences about sound. And those arise, notice those, let them be, using the sounds you hear as your way to be present. This is growing more and more connected to your own body via intention, via awareness. This is cultivating the immediacy-based self-referencing network in every moment. Also, helping you find your way out of old rants and habits of mind simply by hearing these sounds, these little vibrations on your eardrum. That means even 
sitting in traffic or walking down the street in the city are places you can meditate and be in touch with the present moment by a sound. Let's shift to a third object to practice, and that is mindfulness of the body as a whole. Being in touch with sensations and using those sensations as your way to be present. Sometimes, as many people have said, there's pain. You can consider painful sensations as unpleasant sensations. And there's also sensations that are pleasant. And there's also many sensations that are neutral. Using this ever-changing world of sensation as your way to be present. The attitude of mind is kind. Intention is presence. within these spaces of working to stay in touch with sensations of the body, are the places as well where we start getting very, very clear messages about where our mind usually goes, whether to the future or past, whether into judging or striving in some way to get somewhere, The moment you realize your mind is somewhere other than this object of practice, you might take just a moment to see, where is it? What was I doing? Oh, future again. Oh, back the past again. Oh, worry again. Fear. And just very briefly, momentary investigation, then 
returning with kindness. Thus we call this beginner's mind. Thus we're constantly cultivating mindfulness and compassion. And these thoughts themselves can be an object of practice. Shifting now to our next object, and that is mental states. Notice thoughts have a beginning, an end. Sometimes thoughts call forth feelings. Using this ever-changing world of mental states is your way to be present aware of mental states. And taking it easy. <coughs> Be with yourself with such kindness as you begin, begin again. From this point of view of mindful awareness, you may be aware of anxiety or may be aware of grief or fear. Notice the part of you that is aware of anxiety is not itself anxious. The part of you that is aware of the grief is not itself grieving. You can let these things be and acknowledge them, allow them, all in this overall embrace of loving kindness, self-compassion. Now let's shift to our final object to practice. Choiceless awareness. 
like an open field. We're not focusing in on anything, not concentrating on anything. Being in the wide open spaciousness, choiceless awareness, and being present. It's an easy place to get lost, but when you do, simply return to the breath for a couple of breaths and then expand again. Presence here now. Being where you are and staying where you are. Let's return now to mindfulness of the breath. Find it where it's most prominent again. Use the felt sensations of the breath coming and going to be your way to stay here and now with each in-breath, each out-breath.
making a space for everything. The thoughts, the emotions, the stories, the old habits of mind, treating them with such kindness, without identification. Sometimes they're just thoughts. Sometimes they're just sensations. You see, they're not me. And they're always changing. And that my way of working with these things can change them entirely. John Kabat-Zinn once wrote that healing is coming to terms with things the way they are. This practice is about, if nothing else, cultivating a huge amount of loving kindness towards yourself. Meister Eckhart has this lovely little poem we can maybe illustrate this with. He writes that all day long the little burrow labors, sometimes with heavy loads on her back and sometimes with worries that only bother burrows. And worries, as we all know, are far more difficult than any burden of the back. But sometimes in the evening, a kind monk comes to her stable and looks into her eyes and touches her ears. offers her a pair. And the burrow's eyes seem to smile and the burrow even seems to laugh for a few moments because love does that. Love does that. Love heals. Love does that. Love heals. May there be peace. <laughs> Maintaining our silence. <laughs> and um, and also maintaining, if you can, minimal eye contact. We're going to shift to do some walking meditation. And use, again, sensations as your way to be present. Only in this practice, inviting you to find a small lane of six feet or so. And, and starting on that lane, begin taking mindful steps. Use the sensation of the foot touching the floor as your way to be present. And mindful walking, we're not trying to get anywhere. We're just being present with each step. So it's a very different kind of walking. There's no goal other than presence with this breath, with this step. 
You can walk slowly or quickly, depending on how your body balances best. But at, as you come to the end of your lane of about six, eight feet, just stop and pause and breathe. And then turn around and go back to the very direction you started, noticing which direction you choose to turn, to the right or to the left, noticing what foot you begin with. And again, stepping, being present with the sensations of each step, engaged with loving-kindness practice every step of the way, turning, returning, or ring the bell in a little while and bring us back to interact again. So, staying, please, in silence, trying to maintain, continue to maintain minimal eye contact, stay in silence, stay very nearby if you can. We ring the bell in a little while and bring you back. you will, using your walking meditation to return to your seat and continuing to keep keep the silence and minimal eye contact, taking your seat again. Notice the shift from standing to sitting.
finding your breath and settling into stillness and silence as you take your seat and find a place that's comfortable for you to sit again So taking a seat that you can feel comfortable and awake. And uh, particularly in the afternoon where there can be some tiredness. And of course it's fairly warm in here. So feel free if you would like to stand up at any point. Even in the middle of the meditation is a way to um, counteract the tiredness. So it's certainly fine to stand And we can begin with just the mindfulness of breathing as a way to stabilize and steady the body and the mind and the heart. This particular practice, which will be the last longer practice of the day, it's about 30 minutes, there'll be less instructions and more silence so that we can just go into our own experience. And so I'll say that the breath can be an anchor for us. You're also welcome just to open up awareness if you're feeling fairly steady. And just be present to whatever's coming in and going out of the mind or the body. We as human beings are these dynamic organisms. Our senses are wired to its various stimuli, the mind to different thoughts and emotions. And you can just open awareness and just be present to whatever is prominent and distinct from one moment into the next, experiencing this ever-changing nature within the body and the mind. So this is called open awareness. If at any point you're feeling confused, you're not sure where to bring attention to, it's fine to come back to one object, such as the breath. Or if the breath is not preferable, you could just do hearing meditation. So there's options. Come back to one object as a way to stabilize and steady. And then if you like, you can open back up again to whatever's present. 
So even as we sit so still, there is lots going on under the hood. Thoughts to be thought, feelings to be felt, different sounds, sensations, maybe taste lingering in the mouth, smells. Experiencing this changing nature within the body and the mind, and even if you do a single object, such as the breath or sounds, it also will reveal the ephemeral, the ever-changing nature of things being present. So let's go into the silence, being present. And so as we sit with ourselves, grasping at nothing and resisting nothing. There's a Thai forest meditation master named Achan Cha. He invites us to, to keep our mind still like a clear forest pool. He says, all kinds of wonderful and mysterious animals will come and go, but you will be still. And in time, you will come to understand the nature of all things. And then you will know the happiness and the peace of one who has awakened. Our ability to keep our mind still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool, is our ability to just be present to whatever's here without grasping at it, without resisting. And during that time, all those kind of wonderful and strange and mysterious animals that will come and go are the fabrications of one's own mind. But you will be still. We'll allow and let things run their course. And in time, you will come to understand the nature of things. As we be with ourselves, things begin to settle, begin to become clear. That clarity brings upon knowing the happiness and the peace of one who has deeper understanding. So just settling and being present, allowing. Things come, things go. Being present. It's almost akin to it at Christmas time. We have um, those Frosty the Man snow globes, and you shake, and all the particles are just blowing all over inside that bowl. But what you don't know is Frosty is a meditator from way back. 
Just sit still. Just allows. And in time, that globe becomes crystal clear. So when we sit and meditate, it's almost as if someone's just shaking us up and down and all the thoughts and emotions and stories are just coming and going. And as we sit with ourselves, things will begin to settle. Allow. Dana Forbes says, Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Allow. So thank you, and um, you know that we've been in a period of practice, <laughs> sitting and walking and sitting for about an hour, and and um, we will uh, now go into um, some small groups to discuss a little bit about what was it like to do a little bit more intensive practice, and we did the. The first meditation that Steve offered was a traditional MBSR sitting meditation which uses points to five different objects of meditation, the breath, sensations, sounds, mind states, which means bringing attention to thoughts and emotions, and finally what's known as choiceless awareness or open awareness where you're just being present to whatever's here in real time as life unfolds from one moment into the next revealing this changing nature of the body and mind. And then we went into some walking meditation, being aware of lifting the foot, moving it forward, placing it down, walking, turning around, walking back to where we started, doing walking practice. And then coming back into the hall and again doing another 30-minute practice with the breath or into open awareness, a little less instructions, more silence, so you've been in a phase of some more intensive practice and let's have a little time to break once again into groups of threes and fours and again that um, invitation to one person speaking at a time and after each person is done then more of a conversation regarding the practice, any learnings, any observations, insights, challenges and um, so we can begin to form the groups, and maybe this time the person with the shortest hair goes first, and then starts to the left. And, um, and raise your hand if you can't find a person and uh, a group. And so I'd say, again, threes and fours. And always that option, remember, that if, if one of you wants to pass and not speak right away, that's totally fine. So maybe I would suggest to be in groups that you weren't in this morning, new people. I think that would be nice.
And if you've identified your group, what I'd like to suggest is maybe be silent. And then those that are not in groups, raise your hands and look around. Stand up and raise your hand. Find each other. If you end up being in a group before, no big deal. Okay. So if I could have everyone's attention for a minute, because there's a lot of uh, talking, if we could just pause. We want to still try to get everyone sorted. If there anyone that is not in a group, raise your hand. Okay, you're in a group. Okay, why don't we just sit for a minute, because we got a little stirred up with this organization of groups and come back to the body, into the breath, and just to be present for a few moments. Stopping, taking a breath, observing the body and mind, and being present. Just a moment. Thank you, with the shortest hair goes first. I know I'd be going first. So thanking your compadres, and um, we'll come back. So welcome back. You guys just had a whole lot of meditation practice. A, so for how many people here was that a first for taking doing a meditation practice like that? Maybe be particularly interested in hearing from you uh, what that was like for you. What came up for you? What did you notice? What did you deal with? So this is a period of time that's just wide open for questions, for answers, for things you may have discovered, struggled with. It's for you. So maybe There's we can a, alternate with the microphone. You want me to speak up last? No, let's use the microphone. Cheers. I mean, I'd like to ask about what you guys feel about meditating in a group like this. It seems more powerful to me and, you know, more supportive. It's kind of a different feeling than when I do it in my bedroom. <laughs> Somebody made a comment to that earlier. And it made me think that uh, there's a reason why um, we get together in meditation retreats. Like, I, I've just spent the last five days with 
about 100 people meditating all day, every day. And, and a really wonderful thing to do, uh, not only be in an MBSR class, but we're sitting together. <coughs> Some of the things are we, we hold the space a little better. We might not wiggle as much. We might not get sick of it and go to the refrigerator, turn on the TV because we don't want to bum everybody else out. And, and so that we hang in there a little longer. And there's a, um, a value to getting together with meditation groups where, where people are all over, all over the world, actually, particularly this area of California. There's, it's a plethora, uh, it's like a mecca for mindfulness meditation groups. And it's value to sit with other people. We support one another. We can talk like we are now and hold a space. And, and it, it does seem to influence us. It's like we've got a whole orchestra of meditators. You know, I'm wondering if some in the, in the further back want to feel free if you'd like. There's chairs closer if you want to get in closer, if you'd like. No, not, a, not an order, just an invitation. If anyone wants to come closer. And maybe we'll just switch. And, is there a hand on this side? And we'll pass the mic around. Hi. So I'm new to this. Um, but I really appreciated this space to um, meditate and the guidance. And so my question was about how to develop a practice on your own um, going forth. Yeah, very nice. And um, Steve was just mentioning that, um, you know, Particularly in Northern California, it is indeed a mindfulness mecca, and so I would definitely get your search engines going and try to find a sitting group nearby you. And, um, and if not Northern California, you know, wherever you are, there may be a meditation group not too far from you. And um, sometimes, as uh, some have said, that sitting in community is very supportive. In Santa Cruz, where I live, we have a, an insight meditation center. We have sittings every single day of the week, things on the weekend. And so uh, having a community to practice with can be very helpful. And, and if that's not available, you know, even just get some friends over your house and come and sit together. And, of course, when you can, taking a meditation retreat is a fabulous way to prime the pump. So right here is, is, is actually a very stellar a wonderful meditation center, and so they offer a lot of residential retreats, some ranging from as short as a weekend to as long, starting tonight, a two-month retreat. <laughs> the two-month, may not, you may not want to go into that first, uh, but, um, but, you know, like, and also taking a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, there's, you know, in the United States, there's hundreds of programs and, and all in every state of the United States, and that's also a way. Um, also, there's a lot of audio CDs you can just practice with at home. There's so many different ways to plug in, but I think having someone to practice with is very, very helpful. Community. Where do you live? Kentfield, not far. Yeah, so you're, you're right. I sh- You'll have places nearby to sit. So on this side first, is there a hand? 
There's one over here. And then later there's one further back there. Just to piggyback on what... Um, is this on? Oh. Yes. Uh, th what she just asked, if you were going... If you were going to... Oh, that sounds like I'm talking now. Okay. Um, if you were going to use a tape or a, you know, a CD, um, is there any particular person that you recommend that has a good you know, multi-step, multi-week kind of program if you wanted to uh, learn mindfulness-based practice or have more experience with it? Is one better than another, in your opinion? There's many, but uh, it's useful to uh, connect with uh, somebody in, uh, in your local community, uh, somebody that you can develop a relationship with. All kinds of things come up in meditation practice that are, are difficult, and there are obstacles, and mm. many different kinds of hindrances, and many things you can get stuck with, and uh, all kinds of concepts that are going into meditation practices as many different concepts as there are gurus in the world. And there's a value in uh, finding somebody that is teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction in your area, uh, actually participating in that class. I teach it online using video web conferencing tools in real time, if you can't find anything in your area. But to develop a relationship with that teacher so whatever questions, whatever difficulties you encounter, there'll be ways you work through them. And in fact, you may use one of those recordings for a period of time, but we strongly recommend that as soon as you can, you put aside the recording and make it your own. Uh, it's uh, pretty straightforward after a while. And for what you never go to someplace like Spirit Rock where we have all these over 100 people sitting meditating for the last week, and not one of them is wearing earbuds to listen to their... And so you, can't, you get... Yeah, no, I, I understand that. But there's value to finding somebody you know. And uh, working with that person, they get guidance, and you become familiar with that voice and that style to find your way. You know, I'd, I'd also recommend... Actually, I co-wrote a, a workbook called The Mindful Space Stress Reduction Workbook, and... In that, there's actually an audio CD of 21 different meditations. And it's actually presented in a user-friendly format with 15, 30, and 45-minute body scans, sitting meditation, the yoga, the loving-kindness meditation. So that may also be helpful and to interact with, with the workbook. And um, there's actually a lot of resources. I, I would say just about anything in that bookstore is probably really good with reputable teachers. John Kabat-Zinn has many different uh, CDs and audio. And yeah, at some point, actually taking an MBSR class and working with a teacher and, and can, can be very helpful. But certainly many, you know, I would just stick with um, insight meditation teachers. And I think that um, it'll probably be pretty good. Yeah. Please. <clears throat> Hello, thank you. Uh, this is my first time at one of these events, and um, I just wanted to share kind of the evolution of the last three segments to see if it seems unusual, because it seemed a little unusual to me. So the first uh, segment when we were doing the, the talking, uh, we're 
allowing things to happen in the room. We had the five different series. But when we started doing the physical movement, I think that the, the moving allowed my mind to, to free up and the physicality of it, just taking each step, kind of brought a different level to the meditation. And then when we did the last segment, you mentioned a lake and creatures, and then my mind just kind of went wild, and I envisioned creatures and a snoring bear. And um, but but it just my mind it wasn't judging; it was just kind of releasing. And I don't know if when you're meditating, if you should, you should have creative thoughts like that, or you should be focusing on not thinking. I just let things come and go, um, and it it felt great. I was kind of smiling and chuckling at certain things, but anyways. <laughs> Very beautiful. And, um, you know, in the practice, we're not, I mean, we, sometimes the, you know, I guess there is certain meditative traditions where the, the, the practices like to empty your mind or to stop thinking. But in mindfulness practice, we're not attempting to do that. And actually, in, in Buddhist psychology, actually a little bit of a jump out of our, <coughs> our Western framework, <coughs> the mind is considered to be a sense organ. Just like the nose smell, the tongue tastes, the ears hear, the eyes see, the body feels, the mind thinks. It's just what it does. It likes, it dislikes, it scrutinizes, it compares, it contrasts, the stories and so forth. So our practice is not necessarily uh, to try to stop the mind from thinking, though there may be times where we get so concentrated on the object we're bringing attention to, there's a sense of stillness and tranquility, absorption, steadiness that begins to arise. But... Our practice is just to be present with what's here. So it's very interesting. There's different things that were going across the screen. Our suggestion would be grasping at nothing, resisting nothing, just phenomena. They come and they go. And, of course, some of them we get interested in and we create a, like a whole encyclopedic trilogy. And it takes us off into the worlds of this and that. But then we want to say, ah, oh, look at this, gone off into the epic trilogy, come back into the moment. And it can and be I'm, fascinating. It's a lot. Of, it could be a lot of fun. Uh, the the object of the pond. And there's a there's all the there's a bear. There's it's it's it could be delightful. And you it said you know like and I was trying to figure what was that the posterior cingulate cortex. And, uh, he who can laugh at himself will never cease to be amused. <laughs> and, and so you find in meditation practice you laugh at yourself a lot for where you find your mind stuck again. But it also helps, it brings, you, it brings it into your day-to-day life as well, that same kind of attitude of, of uh, allowing and amusement and kindness. And, you know, the, I was speaking about, um, it was actually reference to this Thai forest master about, and it was really like a, a teaching. So I just wanted to be clear with that. So it was a teaching about, learning to be still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool. And then, like in that clear forest pool, all kinds of wonderful and strange and mysterious animals and come and go, but you will be still. And in time, you will come to understand the nature of things. And this will bring you the happiness and the peace of one who is awakened. And so it's this image of pointing to, as we sit with ourselves, the mind is filled with all types of fabrications and stories. But our practice is to be present and to allow and as things begin to settle, we begin to see more clearly into the nature of our mind. And that's the happiness and freedom that we're pointing to. We see more clearly. We're just like, and again, I like that metaphor of Frosty the Snowman, because when we sit and meditate, it's like we've been, sh- like, we're sitting so still, but underneath the hood, it's like, oh my gosh, there's like so much going on. 
but we're being still. And gradually things can begin to settle. We can begin to see more clearly in time. It takes time. But what else is there to tell? <laughs> you know, Franz Kafka once said, you have suffering and you have your choice of whether you want to deal with it or not. But if you don't deal with it, then you have two sufferings. So I, I'm more, I like to be more efficient and just deal with one of them rather than the suffering of avoiding the suffering. <laughs> so there, on this side, heart-beating microphone. Oh, you have the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> she's, the, she's the passer of the microphone. There's a... Caught you on that one. So there's a hand here. Raise your hand high so you can be seen. <laughs> now you'll never <laughs> deliver another mic ever again. <laughs> Thanks. So I just had a follow-up question about this discussion and the concept of enlightenment because uh, I'd like you to better uh, maybe define enlightenment in the context of MBSR and how you see it. Mm-hmm. So I, I can deal with this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, maybe it means to lighten up. And, uh, but you know, really, to me, one of the most, I said this earlier, one of the most liberating qualities of this practice, be it in MBSR, be it in Buddhist meditation, is the liberating quality of becoming free of the stories that have enslaved us. This is the liberating quality. And as an example, a friend of mine some years ago Growing up, he was very tall and very clumsy and lived in a small apartment with three other brothers. And he'd knock things over from time to time. And his father, he was kind of mean-spirited, but he also had his problems because his, his wife, my friend's mother, had taken her life. It was not a good situation. And uh, anyways, he got a nickname growing up. This is going to be kind of harsh. But as you've heard of King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold, that children story. Well, he was called King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. And, yeah, you can feel that. And, you know, and if it's not something horrific as that, we've all been told things growing up. You you know, you're not the smart one. You're not the pretty one. My parents said, you're not going to make much money. Well, they were right. I'm a a meditation teacher. (laughs) But good thing you got your brother. And, you know, but, you know, but like we've been told stories, stories about ourselves that in time and through years, we, we believe these to be who it is that we are. Not to negate these stories. They are part of our developmental foundation for our identity. But at times, these stories are enslaving. And so it's very wonderful about my friend, this King Minus. He became very successful in his life, but not necessarily... I mean, he also was successful in the material world, but more importantly, he was successful in knowing that, that he's a good person. He regained his heart. And so the, the, to me, the liberating qualities of this practice is the lessening of, of our grasping, our aversion, our not seeing clearly into the nature of things, or greed, hatred, and ignorance in Buddhist psychology, but it's a sense of breaking more free of the stories that have enslaved us, these limited definitions of who we are. That, to me, is moments of deeper and deeper freedom. We can call it enlightenment, if you will. The lessening of greed, hatred, and ignorance that exists within our senses and our mind states. 
You'll and in its that. place, like I say, and in its place, what gives rise when greed begins to dissipate is the aspect of contentment and ease. When the hatred begins to dissipate, the open-hearted qualities of love and kindness. When the confusion and the ignorance disappears, is clarity of mind and heart. These are the liberating qualities. Please, I'm sorry. No. Um, you can find some elements of these in almost every single MBSR class. Bob and I have done a great many over the years. And you'll find in story after story as somebody is sitting, they'll start crying. Uh, later, they'll bring it up in class. They find a, a child inside of them. <clears throat> we all have this child inside of us. That is a lot like the, you know, the, the little boy Bob just talked to, or the, the little girl that, Nobody looks at, nobody listens to, nobody loves. and There's a whole identity that comes along with that. And we can be stuck in that identity our whole life. And as we're doing practice sometimes, <clears throat> we discover the way that certain symptoms... Are... One, one man <coughs> raised on a... He, he, he called me a few years ago from the floor of his physician's office. He had gone in to have a second opinion. He had just been to a gastroenterologist a, a few weeks before. I had told him he had Crohn's disease. And, and um, he'd gone to his GP. And <clears throat> after talking with her for some time, he had just broken down. And he was laying on the floor calling and crying when the doctor had handed him the phone and said, talk with my friend. And, and uh, for a few minutes we talked and I immediately knew what he was working with was yet uh, whatever going on with his, his uh, GI tract, but he was also working with a huge amount of anxiety. And I had him come in, and over the course of his MBSR program, he made some very real uh, discoveries about the relationship. He was raised in a barrio in Los Angeles. Now he was... Um, uh, regional director of one of the largest federal agencies in California and had this huge responsibility. <clears throat> and one of the things that happened to him as a boy, his dad and his mom were never home. They were working in the fields and, and all other kinds of jobs, uh, washing dishes. He never got to see them. And now he was in this job and it came to him like it slammed him like a... a sledgehammer in class and he just started sobbing and he talked about I am abandoning my children I got this fantastic job it's it's a, I'm making great money for my family but they never see me I've become my father and he found the little boy inside of him that had been abandoned that he'd ignored all his life because he went to school and he worked his way up and he, he became this incredible guy and this incredible job and, and it hit him this is why he was so filled with anxiety as he got a hold of this talk about enlightenment or lightening up he made some big shifts and all of a sudden the, all the irritable bowel all of what they thought was going on in his colon was gone no he didn't have any of these things like Crohn's disease it was a misdiagnosis of a young uh physician in her specialty. But he did discover all of this longing to be with his children. 
And yeah, he did not quit his job, but he found ways to reorganize it with a deputy that could take some of those things and, and ways to could be with these children more. And he dove in and he's checked with, with me now several times the last few years. And there is a kind of enlightenment in this. He is bringing mindfulness to the entire federal agency that, that he is a big part of. And, and so that we make these discoveries that really can be liberating, that we find our way out of the fear and the story and the hatred and the anger. That's waking up. So there's a couple of hands over here. Uh, so what's the difference between MBSR and um, insight meditation? Um, it's a different form. And MBSR grew out of insight meditation. It's one of the underpinnings, as well as Zen, as well as some of the um, wisdom traditions, uh, non-dual in, in India, stress psychology, stress physiology, neuroscience. So there's a number of different underpinnings. And um, you know, MBSR definitely has a lot of resonance with insight meditation, but also with Zen and, and others. And there's a hand over here as well, Jim. Maybe we can pass the mic so that everyone can hear. There's a, a book over here, uh, Living with Your Heart Wide Open, that really speaks to this eloquently. And uh, Bob and, and uh, Steve wrote it. But it's, it's, it's the guts, to my experience, it's the guts of what what we're talking about, and uh, um, I just wanted to share that. It's, that's I'm not his agent or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, we didn't pay. We didn't pay him to didn't say that. Didn't pay me, but I, it's one of the most powerful books I have ever read. And uh, so you know the storylines that that kill us, um, and uh, it it's all sp speaks to that. And it's it's really a good a good companion. Maybe to return to your question about MBSR and insight meditation, just a few more words. The insight meditation is part of a tradition that's some 2,600 years old. Um, MBSR started in 1977, but as, as a program developed directly to help people stress, <coughs> pain, and illness, and, and as a medical intervention to help people learn to do things for themselves that we couldn't do to them as therapists, as physicians. One of the reasons why it's been so heavily researched is because there are very dr dramatic improvements that don't cost tens of thousands of dollars to provide to patients for insurance companies and, and the like, and people really get better. So it's, it's a program developed directly for that purpose. And of course, you know, many of the people that come to the hospital where I work, they, they wouldn't come here. Are you kidding? Some Buddhist meditation center? I mean, this would be the last thing that they would be interested in going to at that time. They're coming because they got pain, they have illness, they're scared, there's stress. And, and so it's a very skillful means, again, a recontextualization. And, and, and these 
MBSR, the, the, the use of language that is palatable for mainstream Americana. We have programs in Christian hospitals, and it's not like some hidden Buddhist agenda. We are using the richness of these meditative tra traditions and also stress physiology, stress psychology, neuroscience, group experiential learning. So it's a combination of number of elements. Yes, the mindfulness practice has its historical roots in Buddhist meditative traditions, but we're really working with the language that's there for the people. Because the deepest thing here is not about making people Buddhist, but helping to alleviate suffering. And the hospital is, in the Pali language, is called dukkha, which means suffering. John Kabat-Zinn calls a hospital a dukkha magnet. And, you know, there is a lot of suffering. And, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of whether one's Buddhist or Islam or Christian or Jew. Like, there's suffering, and we want to help in whatever language we can that's skillful to reach the heart, to help grow in more awareness, to become more, less enslaved from the stories that one has uh, inside themselves. So that it's a, a way to work with stress, pain, and illness. And not only so that we see this helping <clears throat> so many patients. I've been working for a, a very conservative medical center in, in Chico, California. Super conservative. And I've been running my program there for almost 20 years. And I'm a spokesperson for the medical center. I do these big programs in the community. Chico and the entire area is big ag around there. We got a lot of farmers. It's, it's a red area on the map. It's all <clears throat> far right and pretty fundamental hardline people. And they're, they're farmers and ranchers. And, and uh, I don't want to embarrass the medical center doing these things. <laughs> and For one thing, I, I'd like to keep my program, but it's also been something that's been so helpful for the employees of this medical center. Some 3,000 employees can all take this program at no cost. The hospital pays for it. Why? Because it keeps their nurses at work and, and thriving. And it keeps their doctors going with, and helping avoid burnout. And there's not as many sick days. And they're able to do a better job for compassion, patient-centered care. And they see that. So that's a pretty big investment for your employees. They wouldn't be coming to the Buddhist Meditation Center in Building A. There's a hand over here, please. Yes. There's, there's a mic coming to you. Just a really concrete uh, question. For someone who wants to explore MBSR, is it covered under medical insurance, or does it have to be outpatient in a clinic? Or yeah. I use it because I'm a licensed person. Right. Other licensed persons I know can use it. We can be in an yeah. intensive uh, medical um, therapy mm -hmm. or group counseling or um, a, a couple of different things. At an outpatient center where I provide mine so it can actually be a hospital provided service <laughs> and they get more money for that. So and people could just come for the eight-week program and have their insurance covered? Yes. But some, I, some people. Some people. Not, not everywhere. Not everywhere, yeah, not really everyone. I'm one of the few, but you'd have to be a licensed person. You'd have to sure. have yes. somebody do you the billing for you like I do. Yeah. And it yeah. is done. MBSR actually is now, um, this is associated with the Center for Mindfulness at UMass Medical <clears throat> Center. They're now part of an evidence-based registry, which is actually one of the precursors towards 
getting wider insurance coverage. And so we actually have created a, an international certification program because one of the first things insurance companies will ask is who is credible to doing this. And so we have an international certification process that's been established for the last eight or nine years. And so there's an infrastructure that's growing and it seems to be inevitable that this will eventually be covered. And again, as Steve said, some people are able to cover now, but it will grow more as the evidence-based literature grows. Well, the more accessible it is yeah. to so many of them. Yeah. So there's a hand here. Are, are hospices and, and prisons also using um, this program uh, to help the folks that are there? Absolutely. It, yeah. It's really made, I mean, mindfulness has mushroomed to so many areas, and so there's mindfulness-based stress reduction, and what grew out of there was mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy has mindfulness, there's mindfulness childbirth and parenting, there's mindfulness relapse and depression, there's a lot of mindfulness programs going into the hospital, there's actually a number of people that go to San Quentin and are teaching mindfulness down the road here, as well as in hospices, as well as in educational facilities, um, elementary schools, a K through 12 uh, colleges. It's just, it's kind of amazing how much this is spreading in different areas. Not to mention corporate America. I've provided yeah. right over here in Genentech. I, I'm t three major big <laughs> companies in Chico. Ford is giant uh, that really uses a lot. They're, they're our, their chief uh, executive officer. One of the, Ford himself is the is one of the big leaders of that. We got Google. Uh, we got got this going in places all over, many different kinds of uh, of uh, incarnations, if you will. Yeah, a friend of mine, Richard Shankman, he um, founded Mindful Schools, which has become very popular in elementary schools, and it's just a 15-minute mindfulness um, uh, session that they hold each day. And I asked Richard uh, once about how did you get those kids to be quiet, because this is elementary school kids. And so, so all of these different mindfulness, it's got to be developmentally appropriate. And so what he did was he rang a gong, and he said, who can hear it the longest? And all the kids shut up. And that was their introduction into mindfulness. And so we can be creative in that time for scent. And then they begin to ask, hey, do that again, do that again. And, and, and then beginning to introduce some of these concepts. How do we be creative? They just shut up for a whole minute. <laughs> so we'll maybe take one or two more, and then we're going to have a closing meditation. Is there a hand somewhere? A hand right in front. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I have a, a kind of practical question. Um, Steve, I actually live in Reading, which I think is significantly more conservative than Chico. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to communicate, <laughs> something. communicate with you in the future about trying to extend this up there a little bit. Um, but uh, I work in a hospital in Reading and in inpatient wound care. 
and I do a lot of <clears throat> procedures at the bedside that are extremely painful for my patients. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my patients are addicts. And so it's even more of a challenge because managing their pain with medication is difficult because they have high tolerance. And of course the doctors are very concerned with respiratory depression. Um, so, you know, they just don't want to give too much pain relief, and yet I'm having to change their <laughs> surgical dressings, and it's I've had grown men crying, mm. and I, it takes me a long time. I have to give them big pauses, and, you know, one of the reasons I'm here is to try to, and I've been a long-time meditator, and I teach yoga, and I try to have people connect with their breath and use um, imagery-based uh, practices and things, but... It's just really, really difficult. I'm wondering if you can give me just like a, a nugget. <laughs> that's a, that that's I can a wonderful use. piece. That, I, that you know, this piece uh, Bob and I've been uh, harping on again and again about loving kindness, about compassion, and connectedness. These are huge in terms of healing and for being engaged in a healing relationship. And sometimes to just be felt by another person is in itself healing. That somebody really cares about my pain or is with me in it. That's what compassion means, to join with suffering. So I get called to the medical, I get called for a lot of different things to help with different catastrophes. Here's a, a man upstairs, his wife, one of the physicians is calling me, a neurologist going, can't you get up here? This These guys are freaking out. It's got the whole fifth floor in an uproar. I can't go over there. I've got patients. I can't just leave them. I'll, I'll go there in the morning. He says, but we need you. Well, they'll survive. Tell them I'll come in the morning. He went and told them, there's a guy that can come help you in the morning. And they immediately quieted down. And so I show up in the morning. Here's this guy. He'd gone in for um, a headache and he, he had wake, awakened and his whole scalp had been opened and they'd put like a whole all these staples to and they'd removed a tumor from his brain and he and he was no longer in pain but they told him we were able to stop the pain but not the cancer <clears throat> and it, it's you have about three months to live and this is why they're freaking out they've he's 54 they've come to chico to retire to be with the kids and the grandkids and she is enraged with this Hodunk Medical Center in Northern California. She's got to get him out of there. So they went on with this. She was going on and on and on with her story about this Hodunk place. And we're going to get him someplace where we can get some real help. And, and, and I turned to him and I said, well, how are you doing, sir? How, how do you feel about this? And, and he just, big old, old blue collar work all his life, reached over, takes my hand. And looks me in the eyes and starts to cry. He says, I've been, I've been thinking, I, I haven't been a very good father. All night, I, I haven't been a very good husband. I thought this was going to be my chance. And, 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 I, and I blew my chance. And he's just sobbing. And his wife is roaring off again. Well, how could you say that? You've been a wonderful husband, wonderful dad. And, and I interrupt her again. And I said, well, tell me. How would it be like for you if you'd been laying here all night hearing this prognosis? Could you imagine asking yourself, did I love well? And she stopped and her eyes got wide and 
She looked at him, she goes, oh my God, is that what you're doing, honey? She says, oh, I'm so controlling. I just do it because I, I want to help everybody. And they connected and he looked at me and he said, oh, thank you so much. He squeezed my hand again. And I said, what are you thinking, sir, that should be done? Well, I, I've been thinking, I've got three months to show him. Mm-hmm. And you could watch her face just melt because she knew that meant they're not going off to Cancer Centers of America. Sometimes just adjoining with compassion, with kindness, with willingness to hear and feel their pain, allow them to voice it, is in itself mm-hmm. a healing pathway. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Maybe with that being said, we'll pass the mics up and, and we'll just sit for a little bit. That's so beautiful. Yeah, no greater power than love. Yeah, and I think as uh, sometimes mindfulness is considered to be like this technique, but it's really a way of life, and it's much more than meditation. It's about presence. I remember once a therapist asking me, so Bob, tell me the meditation techniques you use for a person with anxiety. She wanted to know badly. And, and I said, you could just listen and love. And um, she looked at me and thought I was crazy. May we never underestimate the powers of love. Even Richie Davidson once said at a conference, uh, he was giving all this um, brain science and everything, and and at the end of the talk he said, it just all boils down to love. That's why he does it. And so feeling into the heart, this precious heart, Jane Kenyon writes in her poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. And I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day. But one day I know. One day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. So just feeling into your own heart. There's heart the great reminder of what is precious and what is fragile. And just allowing whatever is entering into the heart, sensing and feeling into this heart, the preciousness, the fragility of this life.
So I'm going to introduce these practices of the heart called loving-kindness meditation. And it first begins inside our own heart for the times that we've been hard on ourselves and critical. The reconciliation for our own heart, our own judgment. For the stories that I've told myself that made me feel less than. Feeling into your own heart, may there be reconciliation. May there be wise understanding that everything that we've done in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, since our conception up to this moment, it's all been a part of what has brought us here. And this is no mistake, you are here. It's all been a part of what brought us here. And may we open into our own hearts with great kindness, befriending the places that we felt were unwanted and, and pained. Carl Jung writes that I feed the hungry and I can forgive an insult, I can love my enemies, that these are great virtues, but what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars, the most impudent of the offenders are all within me, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness that I stand in the need of, my, of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. So feeling into our own hearts, befriending, opening to compassion for ourselves as we are, imperfectly perfect as we are. This first aspect of reconciliation to the times we've been hard on ourselves and we can extend it as well to the times that I've hurt another. Knowingly or unknowingly, there's been times perhaps due to my own fears, my own pains, that I've hurt another. May there be reconciliation to those we've hurt. And may there also even be reconciliation to those that have hurt us. I'm not saying that we have to forgive, it's not easy to forgive, but in the spirit of reconciliation, 
And in the spirit of wanting to support our own well-being, may we begin to neutralize any places within us that are harboring resentment, grudges, ill will towards another. So we begin to understand that this is like a poison that we carry within our own heart. This reconciliation, the beginning to neutralize resentments and grudges and ill will within. This is the beginning of the reconciliation, not of wanting to feel more happiness within our own lives. May the resentment begin to dissipate. May the understanding grow, just as we know at times we've hurt another from our own fears, our own pain, our own unawareness. May those that have hurt me, that have hurt others, may they discover the gateways into their hearts, dissolving their own fears, their own pains, their own ignorance or unawareness. Miller William writes in a powerful reading called Have Compassion. He says, have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems to be conceived of bad manners as cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone where no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. May we open into our hearts with compassion. So this cleansing of the heart of reconciliation to the times we've been hard on ourselves the times, due to our unawareness and fear, we've hurt or been hard to another. Reconciliation to those that have hurt me. The dissolving gradually of our own resentments and grudges that so painful and hardens our heart. Just like a rosebud feels its light, the light against its being, as Hafiz would say, let this rosebud open within the heart rather than it being hardened may be opened. Feeling into our own heart with great kindness and reconciliation and compassion for our own pain, for the pain we've caused or received. opening into our hearts with compassion.
May there be peace. Perhaps in these beautiful moments, just an invitation to just be with yourself as you are, contented and with ease. There's not a sense of wanting anything more or pushing anything away, just for a moment, like an oasis, just to be here. Nothing that's more needed to get or to be pushed away. Just as you are. Contentment is the greatest of wealth. Becoming free of the wanting and the not wanting, just for a few moments. The clarity of the mind and the heart. Being with peace. just open into our hearts with this sense of contentment and well-being and may we express it and share it with those that are near and dear to us, our family, our friends, our community. To all of those individuals, all those that we hold as near and dear, may they find the gateways into their own hearts. May they know peace. May they know contentment in ease, extending this goodwill to those that are near and dear. Letting this goodwill that's inexhaustible, letting this spread to those that are neighbors, our acquaintances, even to strangers, may they too find the gateways into their own hearts. May they know peace. May they experience contentment and ease. Letting this goodwill extend to all the creatures, great and small, those that live in and on the earth, for spreading this goodwill to all the creatures, those that live in and on the earth, those that live in the waters, those that live mostly in the air. Spreading this goodwill to all beings, may all beings know peace.
letting this loving kindness that knows no bounds spread throughout this world. May all beings be with peace. Of course, this world is interconnected to a solar system and a universe and letting this goodwill extend above and below and all around in all directions. May all beings here and everywhere find the gateways into the heart, experiencing ease and peace. All beings dwell with peace. And I'd like to just offer a, an end of, with a very beautiful poem, one of my favorites, called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. And I love how even the Dalai Lama says that my religion is kindness. And in my own experience with the teachings of mindfulness, it's really been a legacy that has been passed from one generation to next of teachings of great kindness. <clears throat> and so she writes, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt <clears throat> in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness. And how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating corn and chicken that they'll stare out those windows forever. And before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian and a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road. And you must see how this could be you. And how that he too is someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow and you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of that cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoe and sends you out into the day. It's only kindness that 
raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. And so just feeling into this heart, the fragility, the preciousness, may there be peace. Breathing in and breathing out, inviting in that again, that sense of contentment and ease, experiencing it just for a moment, becoming free of the wants and the not wants, contentment and ease with the breath in, and the breath out. May all beings be at peace. So thank you um, so much for this day of uh, <laughs> mindfulness and medicine. Actually, the root word for medicine comes from Madiri, which uh, has an association between meditation and, and, and medicine. So um, maybe just to follow up on that, that... Uh, I read not long ago that the, the word suffer comes from uh, ancient roots that mean to carry. Maybe taking on some of these practices will help you lay some of the things you're carrying down. So just to say a few words, that Bob and I lead four to five retreats a year together off at Commonweal Retreat Center for medical professionals where we provide CEUs just like at here. For, for most medical professionals. Been doing that for some 17 years now. Please take a look at our websites if you're interested. And you'll find it on your, if you take a look at some of the materials that Spirit Rock has about some of these day longs, they have day longs here on a very regular basis and a lot of very wonderful topics. And so I'd like to extend an invitation from Spirit Rock as well to. Take a look at those. There's many wonderful things to learn about from really gifted teachers. Think of anything that might be important for announcements? Yeah, actually, one announcement is a very practical and important one, is that when you uh, 
when you come out of um, Spirit Rock, you, you have to take a right um, rather than going across traffic. And so you have to take a right on, on um, Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, and then there's a left uh, that you, the first left you can take, you can actually do a U-turn there, or you can actually go through the town of Woodacre, and that will wind back onto Sir Francis Drake a little bit further down. So please um, drive carefully. There's a, actually a funny story that comes out of actually a much longer retreat that a person took here at Spirit Rock some years ago where um, they were driving on Highway 101 going back and all of a sudden saw the police lights and the siren behind them. And it's like, oh, God, I must be going 90 and pull over. And and person rolls down the window. The policeman comes up and and the policeman says to the person, sir, do you know how fast you were going? And he says, 75? Sir, you were going 25 miles an hour. <laughs> so things, the world got kind of fast. So I will, I'll say the advice to keep to the speed limit. No more so, no less so. And uh, one of the things about this practice is that wherever you go, here you are. The practice begins in this moment. This is the wonderful thing about this practice. The moment you realize that you're not present, you are present, and you can begin again and again and again. This is a very loving practice. The moment you, even if you weren't aware for the last 20 years, but now you are, congratulations, I'm back again. And the practice begins in that moment. So may you practice with, with kindness, with befriending. So this is, I think, a very important thing. And again, um, you know, in our day-to-day life, Try to be mindful as best you can, and when you have time, sit for a little bit and find some community to practice. Come back here. This is a great place, and may you continue with your practice. And I also want to just say personally thank you so much for all of you that have come today. And um, if we said anything in any way, too, that was out of the way, I want to apologize, because sometimes we don't know. I really want to pause and say this very sincerely. We don't know with our language what we may say that might offend someone in some way that we don't even know about. And, and um, you know, I just want to give due respect to appreciate diversity in all of its spectrums. And sometimes we can say things that are out of the way. So I just want to actually let me know because I want to grow as well. And, uh, and of course, um, you can say something and not say something and trigger somebody too. That I know. But we really thank you so much for coming. And, um, thank you. Thank you. So I think uh, if there's some things, CEU things that people need to sign, you're welcome to. And um, just about five and have drive back safely. Drive safe, everyone. <laughs>